Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just the ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. Solo Monster. What's going on, man? I heard you can be pretty critical. And Wayne told me to bash you, but I tend to be a little critical on my show and on my podcast as well. I hope you enjoy seeing the world's strongest man shout you out. And you listen to the Solo Monster sound off. It's business time, baby. You are listening to Solo Monster Sounds Off. It's such good shit. Mama Monster. Conquered! You're saying Vince McMahon is stupid. Is that what you're saying? Oh my God, we're only an hour in. We have two more hours of this. God, this dialogue is shit. Who writes this stuff? Bruce? Come over here and fight me. I'm the Solo Monster, damn it. Solo Monster, who are you to doubt El Dandy? (laughs) Welcome to the World's Strongest Podcast. This is episode 697. Of the Solo Monster sounds off here on a very rainy Sunday, March 28th, 2021. I am the Solo Monster. I want to thank Wayne for the Mark Henry shout out. That was very nice. We got a lot of things on tap for you. We have a gigantic week in wrestling history to go through. By far the longest history segment that I have done. But probably the most important, the most historic And I threw some other little goodies in there that you may not have heard before. And I also come bearing much news on Andrade's release, terms of his release, WWE Hall of Fame news. We've got three new inductees to talk about, one of which hasn't even been formally announced yet. We've got the Peacock controversy that's got everybody up in arms. And a poem from yours truly about Monday Night Raw. So this is going to be a fun show. Show your love for the podcast by supporting via Audible. AudibleTrial.com slash Solomonster gets you one free audio book when you sign up for a 30-day trial of the service. You just put your information in, try it out. If you don't like it, you can cancel within 30 days and not get billed, but you get to keep one free book of your choice. Tons of books up there, wrestling, non-wrestling, fiction, non-fiction. So go ahead, and every time you do that, you support the podcast by doing so. And if you want to make a PayPal donation, you can do that too on thesolomonster.com. $10 or more will get you a nickname and a shout-out. I want to say thank you to some very special people here this week. You know some of the names. The Portland pop star, Paul Hamilton. Night Stalker, Nayef Al-Safar. West Coast, James Herrera. Big Bear, Brian Becerra. Out of Control, Cody Thomas. Killshot, Keith Hart. The Chicago Slayer, Willie Eichard, Velvet Revolver, Robert Murray, Stephen Handyman, Hallistick, The Diamond Dallas Dance Machine, Harrison Soep, Ostentatious Alan Carter, New York Punk, Arnold Modesto, The 90s Vampire, Eddie Valens, The Wichita Workhorse, Clayton Nettleton, The Alabama Assassin, 
Chris Young, Sherrod Big Daddy Boyd, who I know is listening as he does every week. Also, the Waterloo Warlord, Alex Lopez, all the way over in Waterloo, Ontario. Your good buddy Josh tells me that your birthday is coming up on April 5th. That's the day before my half-birthday. I feel like we're uh, connected in some way. He also tells me that you're the one who introduced him to the podcast about three years ago. So first of all, thank you for that. And second of all, happy early birthday. May WWE give you not one, but two good nights of WrestleMania this year. And it's a big week for Aussies on World Wrestling Straya this week. Adam from FWCI on YouTube covers Peyton Royce wrestling Asuka on Raw. Rhea against Asuka at WrestleMania and Bronson Reed pinning LA Knight on NXT this week. That was uh, quite the surprise. Plus a very special Asuka Twitter check-in, Kyle O'Reilly's promo on NXT, and why Adam feels that Karrion Cross against Oni Lorcan was the match of the week. Go to youtube.com slash FWCIETC or at FWCIETC on Twitter for all of the new episodes. And I also want to give a uh, thank you to everybody who has signed up this week to become a Sound Up channel member on YouTube. I only opened up channel memberships on there about a week ago, uh, and it's it's growing slowly but steadily. And I want to thank everybody who has done so. We've got two tiers on there for those who are interested. The Sound Off Superstar tier, which is the $4.99 monthly tier, and Sound Off Legend for $9.99 a month. You get a lot of the same perks. Uh, the Legend tier have already begun uh, uploading episodes of the Sound Off from the very beginning, 2007, the Lost Episodes. In fact, uh, the combo episode one and two is up right now exclusively for Sound Off Legend tier members on YouTube. Uh, we got some other fun stuff planned. Just another way to support if you want to show your support and get some uh, little perks along with it. So uh, any video on the YouTube channel. You'll see a join button, a white join button. It's next to the subscribe button. Just click that button. You'll see a video from me. You'll see my ugly mug pop up on your screen, just giving you the rundown of everything. And if you want to, you can sign up from there. And there'll be more content going up, emojis, all of that stuff in the weeks to come. So I want to give a very uh, heartfelt thank you to those who have been signing up for that so far. Road Dog, Brian James, suffered what is believed to have been a heart attack Thursday night, according to a Facebook post from his wife, Tracy, who announced, I want to thank everybody for their prayers and texts. Brian most likely suffered a heart attack late Thursday night after returning from Orlando. He has had tests run, and we are currently waiting for the results. He's also seen a kidney specialist and will have a stress test done. He's always been on meds for high blood pressure. Just please pray all the tests come back for something that we can fix I am a total wreck, but trying so hard to be positive. And uh, later on, she posted a follow-up update. Doctor just came in, kidneys came back clear, and a heart cath is scheduled for Monday, and they will determine then what is to be done. So he is going to be having heart tests done tomorrow. Hopefully, uh, everything comes back okay, because that is a very scary thing to go through. After requesting his WWE release and initially being denied, Andrade was granted his release last Sunday 
This was after I had done the podcast. In fact, I believe the news came out during the Fastlane pay-per-view, so I talked about the uh, breaking news during my YouTube stream after the show. And all I can say to that is, hallelujah. Unlike others who have been released in the past, his does not include the usual 90-day non-compete, so he is free to show up wherever he wants, whenever he wants. He could show up on television, someone else's television this week, if he wanted to. And look, it, it only makes sense. If, if you're not going to use this man, if you do not see the value that he brings to the table in using him, then get rid of him. If he wants to leave and you don't have any plans for him, there's no reason to hold the man hostage. Contract or not, there's no reason to hold the man hostage. Let him go work somewhere else. Wherever that is, it doesn't sound like it'll be with Zelina Vega, who... Per the Observer has already signed somewhere, didn't say where, all we know is that it is not AEW, but where she has signed, what company, we don't know, uh, but look, he'll, he'll be an asset in the ring wherever he lands, you know, another uh, WWE hostage, I mean star, Alistair Black, happens to be uh, Zelina Vega's husband, tweeted Andrade after the news of his release broke. He said, Andrade goes, synonymous with my WWE career. My first opponent and the opponent I won the belt from. From start to finish, a total pro. And in my opinion, few have his footwork, ability to commit, and execute in-ring techniques. Amigo, thank you for everything. And Andrade responded, we will meet again in a few years in the ring. You are a great talent and a good friend. A big hug, Tommy End. We will meet again in a ring in a few years. I I guess Black really did sign that WWE, uh, that new deal, that five-year deal once they moved him up from NXT to the main roster. I, I would imagine probably locked in like Ricochet, right? That's That's the belief. We don't know for sure, but that's the belief that Ricochet, when he got called up and he and Alistair got called up together, When he got called up in 2019 to the main roster, they had them sign new deals that were set to be in the range of five years. Which would, if that's true, would mean Ricochet is locked in until 2024. And that would mean the same for Aleister Black. Which is unfortunate. If that's true, that is that is very unfortunate. But never say never. Andrade got his release. And if Black ever asks for his own, then maybe they'll give it to him too. The same logic applies. If they're not going to use him, if they have no plans for him, if they don't see the value in using him, and if it ever gets to the point where he wants to leave, you know, maybe he's content to just stay and collect the paycheck. But if he ever wants to leave, my hope is that they can work something out and let him go. There is no reason to hold people hostage if you have no plans for them. If they have plans for him, then that's a different story. But if not then I don't see why you can't come to some kind of a mutual agreement and let the guy go. Let him go ply his craft and and be happy somewhere else. Meanwhile, Andrade's fiance, Charlotte Flair, announced this week that she recently tested positive for COVID, which would explain her absence from television the past few weeks. I guess she was tired of reading all of the rumors about why she was removed from the WrestleMania poster and, and, you know, why there's great... uh, drama going on between her and the company and 
Maybe it has to do with Andrade asking for his release. She wanted to basically shut all that down. It had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with Andrade asking for his release. It was because she has COVID. That is why she disappeared. And it sounds like, based on something Andrade tweeted her, something about there being only a few days left, that she is at the very tail end of it, and she could be back on television very shortly. In fact, she could be back on television as early as this week. Would not at all shock me to see her show up maybe on TV tomorrow night. If she's basically at the end of it. I I absolutely still expect her to be on the WrestleMania card. Most likely challenging for the Raw Women's Championship. Maybe it turns into a triple threat. But whatever the case may be, I have every expectation still, my mind has not changed, that Charlotte Flair, poster or not, will be on the WrestleMania card this year. Now, we've got a lot of WWE Hall of Fame updates. The Hall of Fame is being taped this Wednesday and Thursday across two days. It will then air as one special on Peacock uh, here in the States and, I guess, WWE Network everywhere else. On Tuesday, April 6th, that will be the air date for the Hall of Fame. It will not be live. It will not be in front of fans, which might be the one good thing to come out of this. Batista will not be going into the Hall of Fame after all as part of the 2020 class due to a scheduling conflict. He posted this on his Twitter. Unfortunately, due to previous obligations, I am unable to be part of the WWE Hall of Fame this year. By my request, they have agreed to induct me at a future ceremony where I will be able to properly thank fans and people who made my career. So it sounds like he would just rather wait until fans were... I mean, I don't doubt that he has a scheduling conflict, but it sounds to me like he's perfectly content to wait until there are fans there so he can have a proper Hall of Fame induction. So Hogan, Hall, Nash, and... Uh, Waltman, Sean Waltman, I guess, collectively as the NWO, are now the de facto headline attraction for the 2020 class. Because the plan is, as I understand it, for those inductees last year uh, to get their moment and be able to give their speech this year. So it's like they're inducting two classes, and the NWO now is the headline attraction. Now, as far as this year's class is concerned, we already know that Molly Holly is going in. We know Eric Bischoff is going in. I talked about that last week. We learned of three more names this week. One has not yet been confirmed by WWE, but it will likely be confirmed within a matter of uh, a day or two. That being Rob Van Dam. One of only a handful of Grand Slam champions, Grand Slam winners in WWE history. I mean, to me, Rob Van Dam is a no-brainer as far as going into the Hall of Fame based on his body of work across ECW, WWE, uh, even just in WWE alone. And as popular as he was uh, during his time, you know, in, in the company, his time in the company actually goes back to 1997. There are some people, I think, who may forget about that because it was a relatively brief thing. It only lasted a matter of weeks. But when uh, WWE and ECW were sort of working together, and ECW talent made a handful of appearances on Raw is War uh, back in 97, when Vince McMahon was just trying to get something going because they were getting their asses kicked every week by WCW. So WWE and ECW decided to work together a little bit. Rob Van Dam was the one ECW talent who sort of rebelled against the uh, the House of Hardcore, and he 
was aligned with Jerry Lawler, and he made a bunch of appearances on Raw as Mr. Monday Night. That's where the Mr. Monday Night moniker comes from. So that really was his entry into WWE many years before he came in full-time. He spent 700 days as the ECW television champion, by far their longest reigning champion, a reign that only came to an end due to a broken ankle. And he had a classic series of matches with Jerry Lynn. The chemistry those two had in the ring was just unbelievable. Those were probably his most memorable matches in ECW. And I thought Van Dam, when he came into WWE in 01, he was one of the best parts of that whole invasion uh, period. You know, when Rob Van Dam came into WWE in 2001, he was one of these talents who was must-see. He was doing things in the ring that nobody else in the company at that time was doing. He was a lot of fun to watch. I still, from time to time, I'll go back and watch the hardcore title ladder match he had with Jeff Hardy. That might have been my favorite match on that whole SummerSlam card in 2001. So Van Dam uh, was, that that really, 01 into 02, that was really his big period when he first came into to the company. He was part of the first ever Elimination Chamber match in Madison Square Garden. That was where he uh, inadvertently crushed Triple H's throat midway through the match. Obviously, one of his uh, crowning achievements, if not his crowning achievement in the company, was uh, not not so much winning money in the bank at WrestleMania 22, but cashing in in advance, telling John Cena, I'm cashing in on you at the ECW one-night stand pay-per-view. They had that great match at the Hammerstein Ballroom. I only wish I was there. What, a, what an amazing atmosphere. John Cena walking into the lion's den. That's where the whole sign comes from. If Cena wins, we riot. And they had a great match. It ended with Van Dam getting the win. Becoming the new uh, WWE champion. And then, of course, they reestablished the ECW brand. So he was a dual champion. He was the WWE champion. And he was also the ECW champion for a period of uh, only a few weeks. Didn't last very long because at the beginning of July. So this would have happened in mid-June. And I think it was right before uh, Independence Day is where he and Sabu got pulled over. They got busted. There was that uh, that arrest that really, that arrest is what led to his downfall. That was pretty much the end of the biggest push he ever got in WWE. They couldn't get those titles off him fast enough. And in the span of, I think, two days, he dropped the WWE title on Raw. And I think at the ECW... Uh, tapings the next day they took the ecw title off him as well that was really the end of his real push in the company he never ever again got that level of push in wwe after that arrest they were pulled over with pills and i think sabu had drug uh, paraphernalia on him so unfortunately that was uh, the end of of his run as a, a double champion in the company but he spent you know off and on He spent a few more years in the company. He did leave to go to TNA for a while. Eventually, he came back in 2013. He was always very popular. Uh, He's got some uh, classic matches under his belt. And a very deserving inductee. I don't think anybody is going to debate the merits of RVD going into the Hall of Fame. And certainly, nobody is going to debate the merits of this guy going into the Hall of Fame. And if they do, then they're a fool. And that is Kane. Kane was a guest on The Bump. They were following their uh, new pattern of surprising people on the air with these 
induction announcements. They had The Undertaker. He was sitting in his car. And he uh, chimed in to talk to Kane. And they let Undertaker make the announcement that Kane was going to be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. And Kane was very emotional. He was speechless. He could barely speak. It uh, clearly was... It meant a lot to him to have The Undertaker be the one to make that announcement for him. And I said this on Twitter. Few big men. I mean, few men, period. But especially guys that are that big have had the longevity and the versatility that Kane has had in his career. In fact, I was thinking about his uh, health history in the company, and a lot of the top stars have missed pretty significant time over the years with various injuries and muscle tears and surgeries and neck operations and all kinds of stuff. Uh, The Rock really didn't miss too much time for any kind of major injury in his career, but The Rock never had the kind of longevity that Kane had. Kane, over the course of all those years, just as the Kane character, going back to 1997, I can really only think of one time that he missed any significant period of time with an injury. I think it was a bicep tear in 2002. And he missed, I think, uh, at least a few months, if not several months. I cannot think of another period where Kane missed any significant length of time for any kind of a major injury. I'm sure he had plenty of nagging injuries and stuff. To me, that may be one of the most impressive things about it. Because he was one of the top main event guys working that same schedule. Wrestling, I mean, I think he might have the record for the most number of matches on TV. Randy Orton just mentioned on the Broken Skull Sessions with Steve Austin that uh, Orton is about to, I think, surpass Kane's record in the next few months of, of most WWE matches on TV. So this guy has been in the trenches, you know, working night in and night out. And look, it's it's got to be a lot harder when you're that big. When you're almost seven feet tall, 300 pounds, you know, you've got that much more stress on your knees. That, to me, is what makes it really impressive that he's been able to have the kind of run that he's had. You know, but I mentioned, you know, I was trying to think of a word that made sense. And I, I came up with, you know, versatility is the word I kept coming to for the fact that you can almost plug him in anywhere that you needed him. We've seen him portray the sinister, evil monster who just goes around destroying people. And we've seen him play it up more for comedy. You know, the the Kane-a-Rooney and the Canaanites, and then later on with Team Hell No with Daniel Bryan. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. Uh, or the stuff with Hurricane Helms. I mean, he has had these periods over the years where he's gone from babyface to heel, monster to comedy player. Whatever you needed him for, he was always over. And he could play that role, even through the authority era. 
you know, with, uh, what, what would I used to call him? Uh, Libertarian Kane. Yes. He could even do that. So, to me, I look at him and his body of work, and more than any one specific match, because I don't look at Kane and, and have a whole list of five or ten classic Kane matches. He's had a lot of good matches, memorable matches, even very good matches over the years. You know, in terms of that one singles classic, I think a lot of people would probably say Undertaker, the match of WrestleMania, the Inferno match. Less for, you know, the technical aspect of them, and more because... At the time, it was just these two larger-than-life giants going one-on-one in this epic brother-versus-brother feud. I think a lot of people would probably cite those matches first. But nobody is going to mistake those matches for, you know, a wrestling clinic. At the same time, does Kane need to be wrestling the same way that Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angle would wrestle? No. Because that wasn't the type of wrestler that he was. Although he did have some pretty, pretty good matches with Kurt Angle. It was a uh, U.S. title match, I think, on SmackDown once back in uh, 01 that I remember being pretty impressive. Kane was, hey, never forget that one Raw match where Kane and Big Show started chain wrestling. They were trying something different. But that's not what those guys are in the ring for. They're not They're not in there to be Fez or Gotch, you know? I mean, it, so Kane and his role, I thought, was just, you know, I will always have love for the original Kane. Nothing beats the original Kane, from that entrance to the look, the way they booked him as this unstoppable monster, Paul Bear in his corner. Kane was awesome, that first iteration of Kane. For me, who do I, you know, if I had to pick one incarnation of Kane that really stands out to me as the best, as much as I love the original Kane, the one thing that might trump it is the one from the beginning of 2000. He changed his look ever so slightly. Same same mask, although it was a little bit darker. But this guy, he was just a fucking unit, this guy. This guy was a monster. Absolute beast. You hear that word thrown around sometimes, beast? This guy was a beast. Go back and watch early 2000s Kane. Other people love Kane after he unmasked. They had him all chained up with a towel on his head. Yeah, at the beginning there, too, he was pretty badass. But I think that early 2000 version of Kane, when I just look at that guy doling out one-handed chokeslams to people like it's nothing, that, to me, is probably the most impressive version of Kane. But, you know, you think, what what are some of the classic Kane matches? And you think of the, the first match with Undertaker and the Inferno match with Undertaker. First blood with Stone Cold at King of the Ring when he won the WWE Championship. Deserved longer than a 24-hour title reign. Still bothers me that he only had the 24 hours with that belt. Obviously the 2001 Royal Rumble match where he lasted 53 minutes. Always love going back and watching him hit Honky Tonk Man over the head with the, uh, with the guitar. But the best match Kane was ever involved in, and, and some people will disagree with me on this, and that's fine. The be- If you ask me what's the best match that Kane ever had, right? We're not just limiting it to singles matches. What is the best Kane match? My answer is very simple. The best match that Kane has ever been involved in in his life was the Shield's debut at TLC 2012 in Brooklyn. It was the Shield in their first ever match together against Ryback 
and Team Hell No. Kane was part of that match. That was a fantastic match. And the best one that I can ever remember Kane being a part of. And then we have the third name. Going into the Hall of Fame this year. And that is the great Kali. The biggest star to come out of India. Former world heavyweight champion. Innovator of the Punjabi prison match. And an induction speech that will be talked about for years to come. Hey, look. Kali is... You don't have to sell me on the fact that Kali is huge in India. I hear, you know, clearly he's a very big deal to the population over in India. And he still trains talent to send over to the States and send over to to WWE. So he is still involved in the business. Just because he's not on WWE television doesn't mean he's not still involved in training people and, and having a hand in that. But man, you know, when I think back to all those... Great, classic, Kali moments. The list is very long. I mean, we, we've got the... Uh, uh, well, you know, there, there was the, the time that he... You know... Uh, uh, well, uh, who can forget that great... You know... Uh, well... How about I just do this? How about I just share a story that Chris Jericho told in his book? I think it was Jericho's second book. The best in the world at what? I have no idea. Which is on Audible, by the way. So if you use our link, you can get the book for free. Cheap plug. But I always love this story. And it's uh, it's probably the best Kali story that I've heard. It's 2009. Big Show is teaming with Chris Jericho and CM Punk in a match against Kali, Undertaker, and one of the Hardy Boys. I think it was Matt, but it's not relevant to the story. They're in Puerto Rico, okay? And they're having this this six-man tag team match. And the Big Show was, he was getting hot because Kali was stealing his moves. He did the, uh, the deal in the corner where he shushes the crowd, tells them to quiet down, And then he chops the guy right in the chest. Well, that's a big show spot. And, you know, guys are very protective of their shit. Certain guys have certain moves and spots in the course of a match that they use. And they don't want to, especially if you're a veteran, right? If you're a veteran and a a headline guy like Big Show is, and here comes someone else who's stealing your spots, you know, they get very upset about that. And Kali started using it. So Big Show is out on the apron, he's watching this, and he is pissed. And Jericho knows that shit's about to go down when they get back to the dressing room. Sure enough, Big Show sees Kali walk in. He says, hey, motherfucker, why do you keep stealing my spots? That's bullshit. And Kali, in that in that thick accent of his, he plays dumb, and he just goes, what do you mean, bro? And Big Show says, don't play that innocent bullshit with me. Because I've talked to you before about this. I've told you before to stop stealing my stuff. You can't even do any of it properly anyway because you're the fucking shits. (laughs) Now I really wish Big Show was still in WWE so that he can induct Kali and call him the fucking shits. But Kali then gives an all-time classic response. 
by telling the big show, You're the shits too, bro. Well, that set off Big Show. He threw the first punch. He nailed Kali right in the jaw. Kali didn't go down. He may have stammered backwards, but Kali did not go. He got he got the, the WMD punch right to the jaw. He did not go down. Uh, in fact, he even threw a punch right back at Big Show. And finally, Big Show, he goes to throw this wild swing. And he trips over a chair and he goes down. Kali falls down on top of him. At that point, the other wrestlers step in to separate them. I don't know why you would do that. That's like stepping in between Godzilla and King Kong. But Kali claims that Big Show, he sat in the corner of the dressing room when it was over and he was crying like a baby. Something tells me I think Big Show would have a different assessment of that. But that's what Kali says anyway. But for this story alone, Kali should be in the Hall of Fame. And this WWE Network move to Peacock is even worse than a lot of fans initially feared. Now, my network subscription officially lapsed on Wednesday, so now I wait like the rest of you for them to re-upload all the classic content that they had up before. But it could take a while for that to happen. And this week, we found out why that is. We found out why they are projecting that all of this content will not be back up at least until August. According to a story... On the Hollywood Reporter website, racist moments from the wrestling franchise's history are quietly being deleted from the archive as the massive programming library gradually transitions from the WWE Network. According to sources familiar with the situation, the NBC Universal owned streaming service is reviewing all 17,000 hours of WWE content to ensure that it aligns with Peacock's standards and practices. WWE is also being made aware of any edits. And people are already pointing out the fact that you can no longer find the match from WrestleMania 6 between Roddy Piper and Bad News Brown, or the promo, the Piper promo that came before it. That's all gone now. Because that was the match where Piper painted half his body black. He was half white, half black. Vince McMahon, dropping the slang version of the N-word at Survivor Series in 2005 in that backstage segment with John Cena. Gone. Because the pay-per-views are already up on the network, so you can go and you can see certain things that are, are no longer there. Those seem to be the two main things people have pointed out so far. Now, for the record, both of those segments sucked. The match sucked. Painting himself half black was incredibly stupid. And the Vince McMahon segment was also stupid. If you got a chuckle out of it, good for you. I thought it was stupid. Now, that being said, I don't believe for a second that this is going to be limited only to racist stuff. If they were saying, well, there's a few really egregiously racist moments that we want to delete from the network, whatever. Fine. But you know it's not going to be limited only to racist stuff. If they're scanning through 17,000 hours of content to make sure that it aligns with their standards and practices... Two words that should just send a, send a, a, a shiver down everybody's spine. Then I'm not sure what's going to be left. The, the 80s were full of offensive promos and gimmicks. The Attitude Era, I mean, you may as well not even put it up. Those episodes of Raw are going to end up being six minutes long. I mean, this is ridiculous. Just throw up a disclaimer. Is it really that hard? 
throw up a, a lot of other services do this. Throw up a disclaimer that makes it very clear that it may contain content that some viewers may find offensive or may find objectionable. Peacock in no way endorses it, but it is presenting it in its original form to allow viewers the choice to watch it in its entirety or or something to that effect. Believe me, there are a lot of segments that this company has produced over the years that were done in very poor taste. But, it, you know, it's a slippery slope. You delete one thing, how do you not delete it all? How do, how do you differentiate from one to the other in terms of what's more offensive or less offensive? I find it very amusing that Peacock paid a billion dollars for the network. And I know that the real priority for them is the live pay-per-views and the documentaries and a lot of the current stuff. That's the real reason. They didn't spend a billion dollars for, you know, In Your House from 1995. It just sort of came with the package. I get that. But in totality, the the tape library is very significant. You've got thousands of hours of classic content, not just from WWE, but all these other promotions as well. It's a very valuable asset. And I find it very amusing that Peacock paid a billion dollars for this, but didn't bother to do any kind of inventory of those 17,000 hours before the deal was done. In fact, I saw them put out job postings this week or or postings for uh, interns. They're looking for interns that they could hire to help comb through the entire library. So this is who is going to be reviewing this or at least helping in the review process. You would think they would have already been prepared for this. But it just goes to show you how hastily this deal was put together because they just wanted to get this done in time for WrestleMania. So they had to close quickly on this deal. And now all of this stuff that should have at least, they should have at least started this process weeks ago. They're now first doing it now. But this is the sad reality of what happens when you sell your content to the highest bidder. You know, Peacock spent a billion dollars on this. They're free to do as they please. They now own this, I think, for what, five years? For the next five years, they own this. They're in control of this content now. So they are free to do whatever they want. I don't even necessarily blame them. It's just a sad reality that ultimately the fans are the ones who get screwed. The build to this year's WrestleMania, I would say, is among the weakest they've ever done. Almost everything feels completely slapped together last minute, because it is. Even Bobby Lashley, in an interview this week, admitted that he and Drew McIntyre haven't really had time to build anything for their match. But it'll still sell out both nights, because it's WrestleMania. And because people are just hungry to get back to attending live wrestling shows. And when you release 25,000 seats in a stadium where normally you would be able to fit 65,000, it's not going to be that hard to sell out. The show on Monday night, it started the way that it ended the previous week with another Lashley-Sheamus non-title match with the same outcome, a Bobby Lashley win. They've been teasing a possible split for a few weeks now in the Hurt Business with Lashley and MVP being very unhappy with Shelton and Cedric. First losing their Raw Tag Team titles to the New Day. And here this past week, they double-teamed Sheamus when the match was over. Which Lashley did not ask for them to do. Until Drew McIntyre came out to make the save. Lashley later on in a backstage segment, he <laughs> he walked in to the 
24-7 geek section of the locker room. And he promised a title shot to anyone who takes out Drew McIntyre before WrestleMania. Now, I was a little confused by this because one of the things that he was so upset with Shelton and Cedric about is the fact that they took it upon themselves to, you know, beat up Sheamus when he didn't ask them to. And now people are going to think he needed their help. And yet here he is going to the locker room and basically putting a bounty on Drew McIntyre's head. By the way, Ricochet, good old Rick O'Shea, he was among the geeks that was sitting amongst uh, all the other ones in that section of the locker room. As if there was any confusion about his place on the roster, let there be no doubt. Peyton Royce, remember I talked about her on the podcast last week and her little work shoot on uh, Raw Talk the week before, demanding, you know, don't waste my time, give me Asuka. Well, she got her match. She got the match that she wanted with Asuka, and she tapped out to the Asuka lock. And, you know, I saw some people really praising this match on social media. I think this is a classic case of people grading on a curve because they're just happy to see this woman who has really been, uh, I don't say held back, but they really haven't been doing anything with her. They broke up the Iconics for no apparent reason, didn't have any real plans for either one of them. And Peyton Royce has just been sort of sitting around, twiddling her thumbs, not doing much of anything. And I think people were just happy to see that she was actually in the ring with the champion on Monday night. I didn't think the match itself was all that great. I didn't really see what the big deal was. It really wasn't that good. I mean, there was certainly nothing here that made me want to see them run it back again right away. Maybe uh, sometime in the future. But it was the appropriate result. You know, we're heading into WrestleMania. The champion should not be losing. But that brought out Rhea Ripley. When this match was over, making her uh, first formal appearance on Monday Night Raw to talk about Charlotte, you know, having recently come out and challenged Asuka to a match at WrestleMania. But then Charlotte went and got covid And so instead, she said, I'm stepping up and I'm challenging you to a championship match at WrestleMania, a challenge that Asuka accepted. This is one of those thrown-together last-minute matches, although it seems like it was necessitated by Charlotte getting COVID. But it is one of those thrown-together last-minute matches that I am looking forward to. I am looking forward to seeing this match. I have no interest in seeing Rhea Ripley wrestling you know, coming to Raw and wrestling Dana Brooke, coming to Raw and wrestling Lana, coming to Raw and wrestling any of these other people just to kind of build her up for a championship match. This woman belongs in the title picture right now. That is the state of the Raw women's division. There are no other viable challengers. Once you get past Charlotte Flair, who's always going to be the obvious one, there is nobody else. We're heading into WrestleMania. Who do you put in there against Asuka? There is no other obvious name that is ready. Yo, Asuka loves to come on TV. No one is ready for Asuka. Okay, well, you know what? It's a shoot. Name me one other person on that roster who is ready for Asuka right now. As a as a worthy, viable challenger at the moment. I don't want to hear Lana. I don't want to hear, you know, Nia Jax. I don't want to hear uh, even Shayna Baszler, as much as it pains me to say that. Shayna Baszler, Naomi. There's some good ones in there. None of them are in a position to be challenging right now at WrestleMania. For the Raw Women's Championship. Just because of the way they've been 
used on TV. There's nobody ready for that spot. Rhea Ripley on day one walks in and she's ready for that spot. That's it. You're heading into your biggest show of the year. Charlotte Flair may not be available. You go with the strongest possible match and that match is Asuka against Rhea Ripley. Now, I think Charlotte will be at WrestleMania. Sounds like she's doing better. She's at the tail end of it. So I think there's a very good chance this will turn into a triple threat match. I think they just wanted, they felt they had to announce something. And if Charlotte, within a week or so, is recovered and ready to go, they still have a couple of weeks they can get her onto the card. If Charlotte is available and healthy and cleared of, of you know COVID and ready, she will be at WrestleMania. If they have to add her days before the show, they will shoehorn they will shoehorn her into this match. So it could very well turn into a triple threat. And if it does, you know, kind of unlike the Becky Lynch Ronda Rousey thing where they shoehorned her in there to make it a triple threat when they really didn't have to do it, here at least she's got that history from last year with Rhea. Rhea has unfinished business with her. So I wouldn't mind that. They set up a singles match at WrestleMania between The Miz and Bugs but or uh, the Bad Bunny. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Excuse me. Per PW Insider, John Morrison and Damian Priest are dealing with minor injuries. With Morrison, I believe it's his knee. So it's possible that the two of them will be okay by Mania. They'll be cleared and they could turn it into a tag team match. But if not, then both men will be corner men at WrestleMania. Bad Bunny was on the show. He hit the Miz from behind with a guitar. He accepted his WrestleMania challenge. I uh, skipped over the comedy, and I use comedy, boy, if ever there was a time to use air quotes, this is it. I skipped over the so-called comedy with New Day and AJ Styles on this show. They they did some comedy before Styles went one-on-one with Kofi Kingston. I just, I skipped over the initial stuff because I just absolutely could not stand New Day's shtick. On Monday, I mean, AJ was fine. AJ was being AJ. I couldn't stand the New Day on Monday night. Kofi was doing this British accent. This wasn't funny. It was unbelievably annoying. Which, if they were heels, they might be able to get away with that, but they're baby faces. I I just couldn't watch another second of it. Match itself was good. And it ended with Kofi winning when Xavier blew his trombone right in... uh, right over in AJ's direction as AJ was attempting to do a phenomenal forearm and it kind of distracted him and it threw him off his game. 
WrestleMania, it's going to be AJ and Omas challenging for the Raw Tag Team titles. There's another one of those thrown-together matches. Matt Riddle. Oh, let's talk about this. Matt Riddle. What has happened to Matt Riddle? Matt Riddle was riding his scooter backstage around Sheamus while Sheamus was trying to conduct an interview with the new Irish announcer that they have. Sheamus ended up picking up the scooter when uh, Riddle was showing it off to him. Picked up the scooter and he hit him with it. And he left him laying, which I guess now that sets up a U.S. title match at WrestleMania. What it actually sets up is a non-title match on TV tomorrow night that I'm almost positive will lead to a United States title match at WrestleMania. And the best I could say about that, well, there's two things. Number one, at least it gives Sheamus a match. On the, I mean, you got two nights of WrestleMania. And even if you don't think Sheamus belongs in, in the main event picture, world champion, you don't really see him right now at that level. The guy's been just killing it. He's been busting his ass on TV, having some really great matches with Riddle, with McIntyre. Even the matches with Lashley were pretty good. You know, he's sort of been one of the unsung MVPs, I think, of Raw. At least in the ring, for a few months now. For him to not even have a match on the WrestleMania card would would be a sin. So, at least it would give him something to do. It would not have felt right to leave him off the card. Riddle is a fucking goof. I mean, this is a, a totally new level of goof. Not that he's never been a goof before. This is a totally new level of goofdom than the stuff that he was doing even with Pete Dunne. The, the, the broserweight stuff in NXT. Remember that one segment they did? The uh, the newly bro show segment that they did? Ugh. But this is the kind of stuff I would expect to see from the 24-7 people. Not anybody being pushed at a serious level on this show. But he and Sheamus, they've had some killer matches before. They've got good chemistry in the ring together. So I think uh, a match of WrestleMania between the two of them would be really good. But Riddle has just become one of these, you know, you talk about must-see TV. This is the opposite of that. It's like how I felt about the New Day stuff on Monday night. He's become a channel changer for me. It's just god-awful. This, this, this goofy comedy they have him doing every single week. It's like this is the role for him now on the show. His segments have go-away heat with me. One of the worst parts of the show every single week. I'm sorry. Shane McMahon and Elias sang a duet about Braun Strowman being stupid. Strowman then came out for yet another match with Elias, as if the one at Fastlane wasn't enough. We had to have an encore. And they have now added sound effects when Strowman does his Lap around the ring outside, you know, he just bowls people over with a running shoulder tackles. They played a choo-choo train noise. As he rounded the bend and shoulder tackled Elias, shoulder tackled Jackson Riker. And as I watched this, because this was just one of those weeks, I'm sorry. This this from the New Day stuff to the Matt Riddle stuff to this. If ever you needed more evidence that this is a children's show, and I understand that. I understand that. This is clearly a show that is geared towards six-year-olds, which is funny to me because the audience is only getting older for this show every week. I don't know what the average age is. Now, last time I checked, it was around 40. And as I watched this, it inspired me. It inspired me to write 
not so much a song, but a poem. A poem by the Solomonster. If you would indulge me here for a moment. There was once a show called Raw. It was the worst thing I ever saw. So I stabbed myself in the eye as I looked up to the gods and screamed, Why? But I did not succeed, and now my eyes bleed. Oh, how I hate Monday Night Raw. As Shane McMahon sings, I pray for some wings that may take me far, far away. But wait, here comes the Stroman Express with a big stupid man who does not impress. Is that the sound of a locomotive I hear? Oh, how I wish these two men would disappear. So remember, my friends, Raw is no good. Not now, not ever again. It is bad for your brain. It will drive you insane. Would someone please help stop the pain? And this was a show that actually had a few good segments on it. I know you would never know it based on how I'm reviewing this. There were some good segments on the show on Monday. But these three-hour shows... You know the, the, the charred fiend we saw at Fastlane, right, Bray Wyatt? That's what your brain looks like after watching just a few episodes of this show from start to finish. That's what it does to you. Speaking of the fiend, we had Randy Orton walk down to the ring with a black bag. After tonight, he said, the bullshit comes to an end. Alexa Bliss appeared on stage with her jack-in-the-box And the fiend popped out. The fiend came out of her box. The lights went out. And the charred remains of the fiend were standing in the ring behind Orton. You know, I said it on the pay-per-view recap last Sunday on YouTube. And I'll say it again. As silly as all of this is, the melted fiend look is badass. I think it looks great. Orton pulled a gas can out of of the uh, black bag that he brought down to the ring with him. He began to douse the fiend... The fiend just stood there motionless, didn't move. He threatened to light him on fire again, but then he gave him an RKO instead. RKO is clearly more devastating than setting someone ablaze. So Alexa distracted Orton, the fiend got up, he put the mandible claw on him, and then he hit Sister Abigail while Alexa pointed up at the WrestleMania sign, and they announced, the the announcers did, that the match was official. They even had the match graphic all ready to go. Boy, that was quick. How did they know? How did they know the match match was just official just like that? Boy, was that quick. The uh, Thunderdome moderators, by the way, apparently told the virtual fans to boo Randy Orton at the end of the segment. So I guess Orton is supposed to be the heel in this? I, I don't know. I don't know anymore. They're all heels to me. They could all wipe each other out for all I care. Uh, As far as SmackDown goes, not much of any importance really happened on Friday outside of the stuff, the main stuff, which I guess is the most important thing with Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan and Edge. Edge is now playing heel heading into WrestleMania with Bryan as the sympathetic babyface who may made his case for why he deserves to be in the main event of WrestleMania. If this seems awfully familiar, if you think back to what happened with poor Batista, heading into WrestleMania 30, triple threat scenario, Brian as the underdog babyface, eerily reminiscent of what we saw seven years ago. Brian cut this promo and he talked about how he, he was 
He was screwed over at Elimination Chamber in that short match with Roman Reigns at Fastlane. He made Roman Reigns tap out, but the referee didn't see it. Edge hit him with a steel chair. Edge is now obsessed over getting his WrestleMania moment. And by the end of the show, he was laying out WWE officials. He hit Pat Buck with a chair. He hit this person. And maybe Jamie Noble, I think, was one of them. He was wiping out WWE officials left and right with a chair. So it wasn't just Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan that he laid out. And honestly, it's for the better. I mean, Edge. we, we know that Edge is a very good heel. Edge really had the best run of his career on SmackDown as a heel. And in front of fans of WrestleMania, Daniel Bryan is likely going to be cheered as the babyface anyway. Uh, now, again, as, as much as I will say there are similarities between this and seven years ago, it is not exactly the same thing. But it is a very similar situation heading into what is now officially a triple threat match. Adam Pearce made it official at the end of the night. I do love the fact that we hear about Edge and Daniel Bryan both getting positions on the creative team on their respective shows. They both get added to creative, and it just so happens that both men wind up in the WrestleMania main event. (laughs) Learning from the game, I see. Learning from the game. I'm sure just happy little coincidence, but I couldn't help but notice that. As I uh, as I looked at what will now be a triple threat, and I said to myself, you know, we've heard stories about Edge helping out on the Raw side and Daniel Bryan helping out on the SmackDown side. And both of them have now earned themselves a spot in the WrestleMania main event. Seth Rollins got another win over Shinsuke Nakamura before Cesaro ran out to attack. That match is also now official for WrestleMania. And it's about damn time. After almost a decade... In this company, this will be Cesaro's first singles match on the main card of WrestleMania. His his kickoff match last year with Drew Gulak at the empty performance center does not count. His biggest WrestleMania moment to date was winning the Andre Battle Royal at WrestleMania 30. And what and really I keep mentioning WrestleMania 30. It just drives home the point. What what a what a big show that really was. From the uh, the big Cesaro moment at the end of the Andre Battle Royal, the Undertaker streak ending, the stuff with Brian getting Hogan and Austin and Rock in the ring together for that opening segment. It's a lot of good shit on that WrestleMania 30 show. If you throw out the uh, the John Cena win over Bray Wyatt, <laughs> that wasn't so great. But anyway, so for Cesaro, this is a big deal. It's not just his first singles match on the main card. If you look at who his dance partner is, you know, as far as an in-ring match is concerned, you can't really think of too many people better to be in the ring with at at WrestleMania than Seth Rollins. I I think it's going to be a kick-ass match between these two. So, you know, as great as that moment was in the Andre Battle Royal when he body-slammed Big Show out over the top rope, A battle royal is very different from a singles match. This is a whole different kind of spotlight for this guy. And I'm very glad that they have found a place for him on the card in something other than a tag team match or a battle royal. Apollo Crews pinned Big E in a six-man tag team match. It was Crews, Gable, and Otis against Big E and the Street Profits. 
you know, I guess they, they needed some way to try to explain Apollo getting another title match, which is now official for WrestleMania, after he lost again at Fastlane off that botched finish. You know, WrestleMania was always going to be the sensible place to do the title change if they were going to do it. I think they should do it. If this guy loses again, if he gets pinned by Big E at WrestleMania, he's stick a fork in him. He's done. He's toast. That is it. That's it. This this new and improved uh, Apollo Crews, the Nigerian Warrior with the spear and all this. It's all it's all for naught. If he can't win at WrestleMania, this would be what his his third, fourth, fifth loss to Big E. He's done. He cannot be taken seriously. At a high level, if he loses again. So he should be walking out of there with the championship at WrestleMania. They did a KO show segment where Kevin Owens challenged Sami Zayn to a match at WrestleMania, which Zayn accepted after some initial hesitation. So fight forever indeed. They are hyping a Logan Paul appearance on SmackDown this Friday as part of Sami's Red carpet premiere for his big conspiracy documentary. I like the fact that they've been filming actual footage now. Apparently, it's real footage that his camera crew has been filming now for months. So, I think it would be humorous to see what the finished product looks like. You know, kind of give us a sneak peek on TV. And then, I'd say release the whole thing on Peacock. Like a full-length documentary on the network. Logan Paul being... On SmackDown this Friday is apparently going to lead to a Logan Paul appearance of some kind as part of this match at WrestleMania. I don't know if that's for a referee spot, if he'll be outside the ring. I guess the idea is that they want one big celebrity, you know, again, whether you consider them big or not. Apparently the the, uh, Logan Paul uh, following is quite large. So, by today's standards, he is considered a big name. I just think of Logan Paul and I think of uh, Dead Body in the Forest guy. This, this to me, is scraping the bottom of the barrel. Big of a star as he may be, you are scraping the bottom of the barrel with Logan Paul at WrestleMania. But they're doing it because they want one big celebrity name for each night. So, you'll have Logan Paul on one night, you'll have Bad Bunny on the other night. They think that this will create... New young fans for them. I guarantee you that it will create it will create a minuscule number of new fans for them. I cannot imagine people who are interested in seeing Bad Bunny and Logan Paul are going to watch WrestleMania, like what they see, and then tune into the weekly television and stick around for more than two weeks. <laughs> Especially if it's on the Monday Night Raw side. I cannot imagine anybody, any any great number of people would subject themselves to such a thing. Rey Mysterio beat Dolph Ziggler, and they appear to be setting up father and son for a tag team title match at WrestleMania. And then we have the Adam Pearce announcement at the very end with Brian Edge and Reigns, with Edge going mad and laying everybody out. You can really make a case for any of those three walking out of WrestleMania with the championship. Roman Reigns retaining, I still say, is the likeliest outcome. But you can have Edge, as a heel, take the title by pinning Daniel Bryan and protecting Roman Reigns from eating the pin. Or you could have Daniel Bryan have himself another big show-closing title win by tapping out Roman Reigns again like he 
just like he did to Batista at WrestleMania 30. I wouldn't have expected Batista to be the one to tap out to the S-lock. Or he could tap out Edge. I just don't think Brian needs it. I don't, I just don't see it. I don't see them replicating WrestleMania 30 here on this show. I think either Edge gets it or Roman retains. To me, those are the two likeliest outcomes. Now, if Roman Reigns retains, which is probably what I would do, if he retains, you could split off Brian and Edge coming out of WrestleMania into their own singles feud. And if, let's say, Cesaro were to beat Seth Rollins at WrestleMania, you could get one or two pay-per-views with Cesaro challenging Roman Reigns for the championship. You know, keep the Cesaro push going for another couple of months before they inevitably give up on it. So I really wouldn't say the outcome of this match at Mania is is all that predictable. That's kind of what I like about making it a triple threat. Plus, I just think it'll be a better match that way. I think Roman and Edge, if it were just heel versus babyface, I think it would have been fine. But with Edge playing more of a heel role, and then you put Brian in there, and look, you put Brian in any match. It's like, uh, you know, dropping some some seasoning on a dish. That's what Daniel Bryan is. It always enhances the dish. It makes the dish taste better. So I think it makes for a better match at WrestleMania. I said last week, WWE owes it to the people paying to attend WrestleMania to let them know what the main events are going to be for nights one and two. And not only do we know the main events, uh, or at least what the key matches are going to be, Uh, We know what a lot of the matches are going to be and when they are going to take place. Bobby Lashley is going to defend his WWE title against Drew McIntyre on night one. Sasha Banks defends the SmackDown Women's title against Bianca Belair. The Miz will take on Bad Bunny. AJ Styles and Omos challenge New Day for the Raw Tag Team titles. Seth Rollins takes on Cesaro. And Shane gets thrown off the pirate ship. So that's night one. Night two has Roman Reigns defending the Universal title against Edge and Daniel Bryan, Asuka putting her Raw Women's title up against Rhea Ripley, Randy Orton against The Fiend, Kevin Owens against Sami Zayn, and Big E defending the Intercontinental title against Apollo Crews. Roman Reigns is going to headline night two. We know that. There is no other match that should headline that second night. But if ever... There was going to be a year where it made sense for them to send each Royal Rumble winner, the men's winner and the women's winner, to the true main event of WrestleMania on both nights. This is it. This is it. Now, I know they're probably going to want to headline night one with a Raw match to kind of balance things out because the Universal title is, is going to headline night two. But what I would do is... I would very seriously consider headlining night one with Sasha Banks against Bianca Belair. And then you have Edge challenging for the Universal title on night two. Your two Royal Rumble winners. Now I know it doesn't work out that way every year. More often than not, in fact. You don't really have the Royal Rumble winner going to the true final match of WrestleMania. I mean, they basically killed that idea years ago that the Rumble winner actually headlines Mania. Right, The opening match of WrestleMania is not the main event. You know, The last time we saw Edge defending a world championship at WrestleMania was against Alberto Del Dipshit. That was the opening match of WrestleMania 27. 
And Del Rio won the Royal Rumble that year. That was the first and only 40-man Rumble match they ever did. Oh, you win the Royal Rumble, you go to the main event of WrestleMania. No, you win the Royal Rumble, apparently you curtain jerk WrestleMania. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. They try to sell it like it's the main event. It's horseshit. Everybody knows it's not the main event. They did that with Del Rio in 2011. They did it with Sheamus the following year, right? He also opened the show against Daniel Bryan. 18 seconds. Beat him for the world title. WrestleMania 35, Seth Rollins opens the show beating Brock Lesnar for the championship. Although Becky Lynch won the Women's Rumble that year, and she did headline. But really, this year, there is no reason they cannot put Sasha and Bianca on last on that first night, even though I've been less than enthusiastic about the way they've built this match up. I do think the work in the match will be good. So that's what I would do. Ever there was a year to stay true to what the Royal Rumble really should be, This would be it. Some quick AEW and Impact news and notes here. John Silver uh, was injured on Wednesday night during the Dynamite main event. He challenged Darby Allin for the TNT Championship. They had a very good match. Uh, In the course of the match, he clearly injured his arm or his shoulder on a spot outside the ring. And there was an initial fear that he may have separated his shoulder, which if that were the case, that's the same injury that kept carrying Cross out for a few months. Danny Birch over on NXT just suffered uh, that type of injury. But we have an update now. John Silver tweeted on Friday that he is going to be out for four to six weeks after suffering a shoulder injury, uh, but it will not require surgery and there is no major damage. So that is good news. That is very good news, because it definitely, you could tell just by watching and the fact that he kept favoring it, it looked more than just selling. Clearly, there was something wrong, and uh, there was a lot of fear initially. Four to six weeks out without any kind of surgery or anything, he can still do skits and stuff on Being the Elite. He can do backstage segments on Dynamite. Uh, He may not even miss a week. So that's that's very good news. Now, AEW is going to be running its first ever non-televised house show. On April 9th, Friday, April 9th, from Daly's Place in Jacksonville. That is the day before night one of WrestleMania. So it is no coincidence that they are doing this on that particular night. They have people flying in to Florida for Mania. And I wonder, though, if this has more to do. So I was wondering, why, why would they be, you know, beyond the fact that they know people are going to be in town for WrestleMania. Is there another reason why they might be doing this and positioning it on that Friday night. And I wonder if it has more to do with Tony Khan wanting to prevent some of his talent 
from working any of the independent shows that might be taking place either that night or that weekend. Uh, kind of give them a payday to stop them from working somewhere else where the COVID protocols, if there are any, may not be as strong. Because they have had situations in the past, that thing, the collective and GCW and other events that guys have worked who then fly into Jacksonville. They get tested and they get you know, the news that either they tested positive or they find out they were around somebody at those shows who later tested positive. And so as a precaution... Right, They have to scramble and rebook certain matches on the show and they're kept off of Dynamite. And I wonder if this is just Tony Khan's way of trying to cut down on that and say, look, we'll give you guys a payday. You come work for us. We'll do this live event at Daly's Place. And you don't have to work those other shows. Because if it is, I think that's smart. I think that's a smart play by uh, Tony Khan if that's what's going on here. And Impact Wrestling is changing nights on Access TV. They're moving from Tuesdays back to their old stomping grounds on Thursdays. And you know what that means. I haven't done this in a few years, but it is time once again to recap all of the different time slot changes over the years for Impact Wrestling, going all the way back to the Spike TV era, right on through Pop TV, Destination America, the Pursuit Channel, and now Access TV. The show has moved from Saturdays, which is where it originated on Spike, to Thursdays, then to Mondays, where they got crushed. So then they crawled back to Thursdays, then Fridays, then over to Wednesdays, back again to Thursdays, returning to Fridays, then to Tuesdays, and now back once again to Thursdays. This show has more moves than a fugitive on the run. Thursdays seems to be their night. They keep coming back to Thursdays. That seems to be their go-to night. But this is happening because of the impending NXT move to Tuesdays, which is going to be uh, starting, the belief anyway, is that it's going to be starting after WrestleMania. WWE has not made any official announcement about this yet, nor has USA Network. I would die laughing. If USA ended up keeping NXT on Wednesdays and Impact moved for <laughs> move for nothing. Oh my god, I would die laughing. So anyway, Impact, starting April 8th. Coming back to Thursday nights, for those who are keeping score. NXT. They confirmed Danny Burch's separated shoulder this week. And William Regal has stripped Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch of their NXT tag team titles rather than uh, play the Freebird rule with Pete Dunne standing in for him for a few months. So on night one of TakeOver, they're doing a three-way to crown new tag team champions with MSK, Grizzled Young Veterans, and Legado del Fantasma. This sounds to me like a, a Grizzled Young Veterans win. They fell short in the last two Dusty Classics. I don't see them falling short again here. I think they like these guys a lot. And uh, they would be they would be my pick or my prediction to walk out of there with the titles. Bronson Reed got a clean pinfall win over L.A. Knight in uh, only Knight's second match on NXT. That surprised me. I did not see that outcome coming, but I like Bronson Reed, so I'm cool with giving him the the push. You know, Knight he'll be fine. I'm sure there will be a rematch. In fact, uh, both guys are going to be part 
of a 12-man battle royal this Wednesday, and I can see Knight tossing Reed out of the ring. So here's how they're going to decide on a number one contender for the North American title to wrestle Johnny Gargano on night two of TakeOver, because they're doing a two-night TakeOver just like they're doing a two-night WrestleMania. They're having a battle royal this Wednesday with Bronson Reed, L.A. Knight, Isaiah Swerve Scott, Roderick Strong, Jake Atlas, Cameron Grimes, Kushida, Pete Dunne, Tyler Rust, Dexter Loomis, Austin Theory, and Leon Ruff. The final six men left in the ring will then face off the following week on night one of TakeOver on the USA Network in a gauntlet eliminator with the order in which they are eliminated from that battle royal determining their order of entry in the gauntlet match. The gauntlet will start out with two men. Every three minutes, a new wrestler will enter. Eliminations can only occur by pinfall or submission. The winner of that gauntlet will then go on 24 hours later at TakeOver Night 2 to challenge Gargano for the North American Championship. That is a mouthful, and it is far more complicated than it needs to be. If you want to get two weeks worth of television out of it, which is why they're doing this, just have a battle royal this week, and the last two men left standing in the battle royal then go on to have a singles match a number one contender singles match on night one of TakeOver. How, how difficult is that? That would be a lot easier. Be a lot easier to follow. Sometimes they overcomplicate things for no good reason because they like their stipulation matches. They want to get as many people involved as possible. You do the Battle Royal, the last two men left standing, they have a number one contenders match a week later, and then boom, you've got your challenger for Johnny Gargano. Walter. Made an appearance on NXT. Anytime Walter makes an in-ring appearance on NXT, it's a good week. He destroyed Jake Ma- or Jake Maverick. Uh, Drake Maverick, I'm thinking of Jake Atlas. He destroyed Drake Maverick in less than a minute. Knocked him out, put him in a submission. The referee threw the match away. That brought out Tommaso Ciampa, who made it very clear that he was interested in challenging Walter for his United Kingdom Championship, which is now official for TakeOver, and Champa got beaten down by the members of Imperium, Walter ripped off the necklace that Champa wears around his neck, gave him a, a just a big old bear chop right to the chest, almost chopped his skin off. That has instantly become one of the matches I am most look, looking forward to all of WrestleMania week, is Walter and Champa for that United Kingdom title. What I'm thinking is we have not seen... Timothy Thatcher now for for two weeks, I think it's been two or three weeks before he disappeared. And I don't, you know, when, when they had the COVID scare, he disappeared. So draw your own conclusions from that. Hopefully he'll be back uh, very shortly. But before he vanished, they were doing these teases because, you know, he and the, he, he and the Imperium members have history together. He was kind of part of their faction, you know, outside of, of WWE. And I'm wondering if maybe uh, this little alliance between Champa and Thatcher is going to be short-lived and Thatcher maybe gets involved at TakeOver and actually provides the assist to Imperium and joins Imperium and Walter retains the United Kingdom Championship so I I would keep an eye on that how does Thatcher fit into all this Jordan Devlin had a match with Kushida. He got a win over Kushida. I love how Kushida went from being the un- this unbeatable guy. He was winning every match for months on end. 
And then he finally lost to uh, Gargano. And now he's, see, now it's like it's been broken. The spell has been broken. And now we get to see Kushida start to actually lose a whole bunch of matches. It was a good match. uh, And it was the right outcome because Devlin's the one with the takeover match, not Kushida. Devlin got the win. He went face-to-face when the match was over with Santos Escobar. And as these two men are going nose-to-nose in the middle of the ring, all of a sudden we hear Shawn Michaels' theme music, Sexy Boy comes on, and out comes Shawn Michaels, looking like uh, anything but these days. (laughs) Looks like he just crawled out of a cavern deep in the wilderness. And he walks down to the ring. He doesn't get in the ring. He doesn't say a word. He looks up at the two men as they're holding up their cruiserweight championships. He reaches under the ring. He pulls out a ladder, and he slides the ladder into the ring right at their feet, right in between the two of them. And he leaves. He never said a word. And so that was their way of making the match between Devlin and Escobar take over a ladder match, which is what it will be. It will be a ladder match to crown one singular unified cruiserweight champion. And uh, Michaels this week, he flat out admitted that uh, he regretted coming out of retirement for that crown jewel match a few years ago. But, But the reason I bring that up As Michaels left, they were heading into the main event segment, which was going to be a contract signing between Adam Cole and Kyle O'Reilly for their match at TakeOver, night two. And as Michaels was coming down the steps to go back into the backstage area, Adam Cole was getting ready to come up the steps. So they kind of like two ships in the night passed by each other. They both stopped and stared at each other. And it was brief, and it was only maybe four or five seconds, and then they went about their way. But, you know, a lot of times these things are are done for a reason. Now, it could be a whole lot, you know, much ado about nothing, or it could be something. But when I thought back to the New York Post interview where Michaels made the comment about regretting, you know, the match in Saudi Arabia a few years ago and coming out of retirement for it, it got me thinking. I'm, I'm looking at a potential tease here for an eventual match between Shawn Michaels and Adam Cole and, you know, if you if you force me to put down money, my my hard-earned money on whether or not I think that match is ever going to happen, I would not take that bet. I would not put money down on Shawn Michaels ever wrestling again or having a match with Adam Cole. But I just put this out there. That little tease that they gave you, coupled with the fact that Michaels obviously is not enamored with the way that his last match went down, would he consider wrestling one more match and this time doing it the right way against the guy that I know he respects a great deal. He does, you know, he works a lot behind the scenes at NXT with Adam Cole. He probably sees some of himself in Adam Cole. Would Shawn Michaels consider having one more match to kind of wipe out, wipe away the stench of that crown jewel match and wrestle Adam Cole at a future takeover show? And is that a match that you would like to see? It's not the Shawn Michaels of of 10 or 15 years ago, but he is still Shawn Michaels. And I would find it hard to believe that if he had a one-on-one match with Adam Cole, it would be any worse than that debacle that we saw in Saudi Arabia. So William Regal was the officiant for the contract signing between Adam Cole and Kyle O'Reilly. They are going to co-main event takeover night two between... Uh, this match and the NXT Championship match. And Regal said, this is a match where NXT is not held responsible for what these two men do to each other. No rules, no liability. 
So basically, it's an unsanctioned match. Maybe Adam Cole is going to try to top what his girlfriend did a few weeks ago. But they cut two very passionate pro. I thought the promo work here was very strong. Uh, it was a long table. They wanted to put some distance between these guys. It was on stage, not in the ring. Regal was there. They had a whole bunch of security goofballs there standing around. So lots of bodies on stage as these two men cut promos on one another. And Cole talked about having a revelation. You know, he said Undisputed Era was uh, holding him back. He said Kyle O'Reilly made him realize that. He, he bought into the BS about Undisputed Era being a brotherhood. And he watched as Kyle O'Reilly lost the first match that he had to Finn Balor. And he watched as he lost his second match to Finn Balor. And then he had the audacity to basically invite Finn Balor to sort of join Undisputed Era. Or align himself with Undisputed Era. Which he couldn't believe. He said Kyle should thank him. And he talked about how he was the driving force this entire time behind Undisputed Era. He signed the contract. He slid the contract down over to Kyle. Then it was Kyle's turn. He talked about UE showing up in NXT to make a statement. And since they came to NXT, they've become better wrestlers, better champions, and you know, better, better superstars. Only one of them, though, became a better man. But there was one of them that did not become a better man. And that was Adam Cole, who he said was still the same asshole who walked into NXT three and a half years ago. And Kyle said he sold his soul for Undisputed Era. And he wants his soul back. So he's trying to make amends, I guess, for his uh, sins of the past. And he signed the contract. He threw the pen at Adam Cole. They had, you know, Cole threw the table aside. They had a big pull-apart brawl. As they went off the air. I thought this was a great show closing angle. Some really just fiery work here. On the stick from these two. So night one airs on USA April 7th. The main event of night one of NXT TakeOver. Is going to be for the women's championship. It will be Io Shirai defending against Raquel Gonzalez. Tommaso Ciampa takes on Walter for the United Kingdom Championship. And the three-way to crown new tag team champions. With Legato Del Fantasma, MSK, and GYV, they'll also have the Gauntlet Eliminator to see who faces Johnny Gargano on Night 2. Night 2 is on April 8th. That will air on Peacock, at least here in this country. I guess it'll be the WWE Network everywhere else. Finn Balor defends the NXT Championship against Karrion Cross. Adam Cole takes on Kyle O'Reilly. Non-sanctioned match. Johnny Gargano defends the North American title against TBD. And Santos Escobar takes on Jordan Devlin in a ladder unification match to crown one unified cruiserweight champion. I will be live on YouTube that Thursday night after night two, reviewing both nights of TakeOver. The night before, I'll be live doing my usual AEW Dynamite review. So I'll just save the review for both parts of of, uh, TakeOver rather for the next night. And uh, probably do a WrestleMania prediction stream, maybe that Friday after SmackDown. Then we have two nights of WrestleMania. So I'm probably going to be live streaming about five nights in a row that week. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of work. But if you guys join me, it'll be a lot of fun. 
head on over to the YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button if you have not already done so. Now would be a a damn good time to go ahead and do it. Because we're going to be having a lot of fun in the month of April. History has been made here! This week in wrestling history, 20 years ago this week, was without exaggeration the most historic week in wrestling history, the death of WCW. The death of WCW is the worst thing to ever happen in wrestling history. As bad as WCW was in those final years, WWE needed the competition. If, if we've learned anything in the years since, WWE needed it. It thrived on that competition. And when WCW went away, so too did a lot of its fans. Never to return. WWE spent many years trying to get those lapsed fans to come back, and many of them never did. When WCW died, Vince McMahon no longer had anybody to fight with. There was no more Ted Turner. Ted Turner was the evil boogeyman who would break out his checkbook. Oh, he's the evil billionaire. It's funny how times change and the shoe ends up on the other foot. But there was no more Ted Turner as the big evil supervillain. There was no more Eric Bischoff. Vince McMahon was at his best when his back was against the wall and he was forced to make changes. Today, with billions of dollars in guaranteed TV money, there's no incentive for him to change, even when the product is so bad. This week marked 20 years since WWE bought World Championship Wrestling and TNT aired the final edition of Monday Nitro, a series of events that unfolded over the course of one very important week in history. So I figured I would just cover the entire thing up front, and then get into all of the other events this week in history after that. And there was a lot more. But this is easily the most significant of the events that took place this week. Now last week, I talked about Brad Siegel. President of Turner Programming sending a memo around. Announcing a hiatus for WCW Programming that turned out to not be an actual hiatus at all. And Jamie Kellner, the new Turner CEO at that time, canceling all wrestling programming on TNT and TBS, which killed the planned sale of the company to Fusion. Fusion Media Ventures and Eric Bischoff, who were partnered up for this deal. That deal had been announced only two months, January of 01, so only two months earlier. They went public, they jumped the gun, and announced their intent to buy WCW. Now, there was a last-ditch effort to salvage the deal, even after Kellner killed the TV slots. Uh, There was a last-minute effort to find a new TV partner. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress 
customers to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durban Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall Credit Card Bill. I mean, after all, pro wrestling at that time, even though WCW was past its peak of popularity, it was already on a big downswing. Uh, And even WWE by that point, to a degree, I mean, the television ratings had cooled off from the the peak, peak period where it was pulling in sixes and six and a half and sevens every single week. Uh, But wrestling itself, WWE was still, you know, very popular at that point. And they weren't that far removed from the peak. Yeah, they were only maybe a couple of years removed from the peak where both shows were combining on a routine basis every Monday night for 9, 10, 11 million viewers on cable. So it would have been impossible to believe that no network would have jumped at the chance to have wrestling on their channel. But when Fusion scrambled to find a new TV deal, they were met with rejection everywhere they turned. USA Network wanted nothing to do with wrestling anymore. WWE had already jumped over to TNN. Uh, the year before, and when they tried to make a deal with Fox to bring WCW to the FX network, those talks failed. And when they failed, so too did Fusion's bid to buy the company, because without TV, WCW was worthless to them. Had no value. On March 23rd, 2001, WWE issued the following press release. World Wrestling Federation Entertainment Today announced its purchase of World Championship Wrestling from Turner Broadcasting System, a division of AOL Time Warner. The purchase of WCW creates a tag team partnership with the World Wrestling Federation brand that is expected to propel the sports entertainment genre to new heights. In keeping with the company's strategic alliance with Viacom, new WCW programming is anticipated to air on TNN In the near future, the possibility of cross-brand storylines and intrigue, however, may start as early as Monday night during WWF Raw is War on TNN and the final performance of WCW Monday Nitro live on TNT. The binding agreement provides WWE with the global rights to the WCW brand, tape library, and other intellectual property rights. The acquisition of the WCW brand is a strategic move for us, said Stuart Snyder, president and COO of WWE at that time. We are assuming a brand with global distribution and recognition. We are adding thousands of hours to our tape library that can be repurposed for home videos, TV, internet streaming, and broadband applications. The WCW... (laughs) Did Bret Hart change his name to Stuart Snyder here in this instance? The WCW opens new opportunities for growth in our pay-per-view live events and consumer products divisions, as well as the opportunity to develop new TV programming using new stars. We will also create additional advertising and sponsorship opportunities. In short, it is a perfect fit. There have been different figures thrown around as to exactly what WWE paid for WCW. I believe it was $2.5 million plus money for the tape library above and beyond that. Might have been like $1.7 million. Uh, I think it was $1.7 million. D- Diamond Dallas Page, I don't remember where he gave this quote. 
but he had given a quote many years ago saying that uh, they got the tape library for $1.7 million, which is, I mean, that's a steal. And had he known that it would have only cost $1.7 million to buy the tape library, he says he would have bought it himself. I mean, that is a ridiculously low figure when you consider the amount of history that is part of that tape library and the ways in which WWE has been able to monetize it over the years, not just in terms of the network, which has now been sold for billions of dollars uh, to Peacock, but in terms of DVDs and uh, other other ways that they've made money off that library. So you, you hear these figures, $2.5 million, $1.7 million, it's crazy. You throw in lawyer fees... And the total that they paid ultimately is probably closer to five or six million dollars, which is still unbelievably low. For a company that at one time, not too long before all of this, was worth a hell of a lot more than that. It was basically a fire sale. This is a company in WCW that generated thirty million dollars in profits in nineteen ninety-eight. They remained profitable through the first half of 1999. And then they ended the year with $9 million in losses. And in the year 2000, the company ended the year with $62 million in losses. In the span of two years, they went from $30 million in profit to $62 million in losses. And that's only because they cut costs. Otherwise, it would have been closer to $80 million in losses. That is simply astounding how fast the fall really was. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but it burned in one. But as you heard in that press release, the plan was to relaunch WCW with its own show on TNN, but even though WWE was already on the network, they already had the relationship with Viacom. They could not get a good time slot for it. I think TNN, they didn't want to be branded the wrestling channel and just put all their wrestling programming in their prime slots. So they didn't get a good time slot for the show. Uh, It was going to air on Saturday nights from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Jim Ross talked uh, in his Ross report at the time about a possible start date sometime in mid-June. They even had certain venues already booked out a few months in advance. Jim Ross and Kevin Dunn were two of the point people responsible for trying to put everything together. Uh, talent roster, front office staff, other logistics. The early idea was for it to just be a TV show initially. No pay-per-views, no house shows, at least not until you know maybe later in the year. Uh, there would be no WCW stars on any of the WWE shows. But there would be some WWE names showing up on WCW because... WWE hadn't signed very many big names. Really, just Booker T and and DDP. Otherwise, it was largely middle-of-the-card talent, so they would want some big WWE names on the show, which I can understand why they would, and I'm not saying that uh, they they shouldn't have, you know, in terms of, of ratings and wanting to generate interest in the shows, but you can see how that would have, right out of the gate, immediately made WCW feel second rate. Which is not what you want to do when you're trying to relaunch and establish a new brand. Right out of the gate, it already feels second rate, right? It already feels less than. Which is, I think, what would have happened had they done that. But they didn't have the big names. The big names were sitting at home collecting the money they had left on their Turner contracts. 
guaranteed money to sit at home and do nothing. Bill Goldberg said, I sat out and made my money. What kind of moron would go to work for half the amount of money when they could sit at home and collect what's written in a contract? You know what? He's not wrong. Goldberg is not wrong. March 26th was the famous Raw Nitro simulcast with Raw airing live from Cleveland, Ohio and the final Nitro airing from Panama City Beach. For spring break, they passed out flyers at the event to all the partygoers to get them to attend the show. They were promoting a Nitro party package with five-plus hours of all-you-can-drink beer. WWE requested the Nitro script the night before, ended up changing almost all of the matches and segments overnight. Almost everything that was planned on that show, WWE came in and changed, except for one very important thing. That they kept as is, which was the planned main event. The planned main event was going to be Sting, one last time, one-on-one against the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Although it turned out to not be their final match, they actually their final match was not on that final Nitro. Sting and Flair ended up having their final match uh, 10 years later on an episode of Impact Wrestling. But both shows opened that night. With Vince McMahon. So imagine if you're a WCW fan putting on TNT. The first thing you see, the first face that you see on your television screen when you put on WCW is Vince McMahon. And he is standing there talking about how he held the fate of WCW in his hands. Booker T beat Scott Steiner to win the WCW World Heavyweight title. Ending the company both as its world champion and the United States champion. So Booker T had all the hardware. He had all the gold at the very end of WCW. And Sting beat Flair in the main event. Then we had another simulcast portion of the show at the very end. Just when Vince McMahon thought that he had bested his biggest competition, Shane McMahon appeared in the ring in Panama City Beach on Nitro, much to Vince's surprise, and made the announcement that The contract did say McMahon, but the name on the contract was Shane McMahon, announcing that he now owned WCW. And the final Nitro closed with, of all things, a promo hyping Stone Cold against The Rock at WrestleMania X7. Ric Flair cut a passionate promo at the beginning of that same show, rebutting many of Vince McMahon's comments at the top of the show and you know serving as this great defender of WCW but that's all it was it was all an act it was all you know a promo it was nothing more Flair felt the exact opposite in real life and he was actually relieved that it was the end he was relieved to see the end come for WCW knowing finally that it was over he said I felt glad we should have closed down a year before We had turned into such a mockery. We had become the laughing stock. The guys in WWE were just laughing at us. It was an embarrassing nightmare for anyone that had ever become successful in our business. It was terrible. I was emotionally upset for the people who had worked there for years, like the production people and the wrestlers losing their jobs. When there are two entities and it becomes one, the marketplace becomes a lot smaller. Everybody got a month of severance pay for each year they had been there, so a guy who had been there for 10 years would only get paid for a year in severance. 
150 people went out of business in one day. Some of them made it, some of them didn't. Nobody gave a shit. It was pretty sad and very insensitive. I would recommend that everybody read the Guy Evans book called Nitro. It's called The Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. It's over 550 pages long, but it is the definitive uh, book when it comes to all things WCW from the rise and fall and how it happened, why it happened. Interviews with anybody and everybody that you can think of, whoever worked for the company, the people behind the scenes, interview Turner executives. It is the best book. The best, most accurate book. The numbers and figures are all in there. Contract stuff. So if you're really interested in the very minute details of what happened and uh, a lot of the names involved in key players, uh, again, I can't recommend that book enough. But to put a bow on this once and for all, that head-to-head period between WWE and WCW was the most fun that I have ever had in 34, almost 35 years now as a wrestling fan. From the first time that I can remember watching it, Monday nights, I mean, it was appointment television. You never knew what you were going to see, who might show up on the other show. And, you know, when I talk about the fact that it's not the same way today, there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, the biggest reason is the lack of competition. Yes, there's AEW, there's Impact. There's a ton of wrestling promotions out there. But there is no one-to-one competitor. I mean, AEW would be the closest thing, and, and even there, it's not it's not a, an apples-to-apples thing. That one-to-one competitor who can really give WWE a run for its money or would go head-to-head with the company on television in the same night who had a lot of the same history already built in, right? WCW, the history, the promotion, you can trace it back many, many years, just like WWE has decades of history under its belt. A lot of the companies today don't have that. But it's it's not just about that. It's not just about creative and how good it was or bad it is or any of that, you know, type of uh type of stuff. That head-to-head period between those two uh companies, when I say it was appointment television, even technology now is just very different. Even the shows that I like a lot of the time, I won't bother watching them live because I know that I could just turn around later on in the night, the next day, the day after that, and bring it up on my computer, bring it up on my phone, DVR, what have you, and just play catch up with it, right? It's just a very different world now than it was 22, 25 years ago. So you can never go back to those days. You can never replicate that period popping a VHS tape in your VCR so you could at least try to record one show and you'll catch up with it later. It's just very different. But it was so much fun because you never knew what you were going to find when those two shows were at their peak of of them being the most entertaining and the most enjoyable that they were. You also never knew who was going to show up from one week to the next. People were jumping ship left and right. Big names too. The internet, yeah, the internet was there. RSPW was there. Social media wasn't. You didn't have Twitter, you didn't have Facebook, you didn't have the uh, sort of instant way of communication amongst other fans that you that you have today. So information got to you a little bit slower than, you know, it would today where things are just, you know, news breaks and everybody knows within, you know, 3 minutes. It was a uh it was an exciting time. 
It was an exciting time to be a fan. You look forward to going home that night at the end of a, if it was a work day, a school day, whatever it was, and putting on the TV and flipping back and forth, you know, between the two shows to see what was going on. WCW took the formula of mostly squash matches. You know, even up to 95, Raw was, you you had a lot of enhancement type matches and maybe you had that one big feature match on the show, that one big main event every week. WCW and Eric Bischoff, they took that formula and they just turned it on its head. They turned it upside down. They took Nitro. And really what they did was they hot-shotted a lot of big matches. And hot-shotting will work from time to time. I would not advocate hot-shotting every week, which is what we see today a lot of times. Because you burn people out on your big matches and then you have nothing left other than rematches. So there's good and bad to it. But Bischoff took this formula with Nitro and made it... uh, you know, a, a big event every single week with big names. And when WCW died, WWE had a chance to do something really special in terms of the invasion, uh, just creatively, what they could have done that eventually would build to some kind of a big super card or a big WrestleMania card with interpromotional matches and stuff. They had an opportunity to do that, and they bungled it in spectacular fashion. But not before WCW bungled itself. It never should have happened. And wrestling has never been the same. 33 years ago this week, on March 27th, 1988, two historic events took place head-to-head. WWE and Jim Crockett Promotions went head-to-head with WrestleMania against the first-ever Clash of the Champions special on TBS. This was uh, Crockett's revenge for what Vince McMahon had pulled, not only with Survivor Series running on uh, the same night as Starcade, Thanksgiving night, but then running the free Royal Rumble special on USA Network opposite their Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view in January. It was very, it was this, it was this uh, kind of tooth and nail, back and forth, tit for tat kind of thing between the two companies. Uh, but... This was this was Crockett's revenge. Actually, they should have called it that. They should they should have called this event Crockett's Revenge. Sounds like an episode of Miami Vice. But first, let's talk about WrestleMania from Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey, which sat right next to the uh, build location for the show. They called it Trump Plaza in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Trump Plaza was a hotel and casino, uh, which was actually demolished just last month. Talk about timing. Boardwalk Hall still stands to this very day because it was designated as a landmark back in the late 80s. Uh, actually, I think even before WrestleMania was there. It might have been the year before. It got designated as a landmark, so it still stands today. 16 matches over the course of a four-hour show does not make this one of the better WrestleManias. In fact, this WrestleMania is probably closer to the bottom of the list of greatest WrestleManias of all time. The WWF title had been vacated after Andre the Giant got that controversial win the month before over Hulk Hogan on NBC. 33 million people tuned in to see. Hogan got the shoulder up, but the referee didn't see it. He didn't count, or uh, rather he continued to count until Andre was awarded the championship. And then Andre just turned around and surrendered the title to Ted DiBiase. You can't just do that. You can't just hand the title over to somebody else. So Jack Tunney vacated it, and a new champion would be crowned at WrestleMania. Hulk Hogan was going off to film the movie No Holds Barred for a few months. Some think that this was the debut of the Winged Eagle belt, 
but Hogan had already worn the belt out to the ring without really much fanfare at all uh, the month before for that match with Andre. So this was not the debut of that new belt. Hogan and Andre both got buys uh, into the next round of the tournament where uh, both were eliminated. They had a double disqualification and both men were eliminated from the tournament. And what should have been an obvious rematch from WrestleMania 3 between Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat, both of whom were in this tournament, both of whom had they both won their opening round matches would have clashed in the next round. I guess that would have been a quarterfinal or a semi, well, quarter, I think quarterfinal round match uh, in the tournament. It was all lined up perfectly, but Steamboat, who was basically had one foot out the door already, he was he was on his way out of the company, he got bounced out of the first round. You know, WWE didn't really like, clearly, because you, you can't really find a record of too many of them. Back then, they really didn't like the idea of doing babyface against babyface. It's not something that they really ever did, very, or at least not very often. And that's probably as much of the reason as any why this match didn't happen. But I would have had a rematch between the two of them from WrestleMania with Savage going over this time and then Steamboat shaking his hand when it was all over to, to really cement Savage's newfound status as a babyface. But the only thing I could think of besides the whole babyface against babyface thing and not wanting to, to do it, I mean, unless Steamboat just had heat with the wrong people and they just wanted to embarrass him by by eliminating him first. Uh, the only other thing I could think of is that they were already doing that with Hogan at the end of the show. Hogan, by being friends with Savage, was basically going to be giving him the rub anyway. So maybe they just felt, you know, with Steamboat, it wasn't necessary. Whatever the case was, it was a missed... I don't care what anybody says. It was it was stupid. It was a missed opportunity. It would have made things a lot better uh, had they gone down that road. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The story that has always gone around is that Ted DiBiase was to have won the tournament. He was going to win the WWF championship only to drop it back to Hulk Hogan the following year at WrestleMania 5. Randy Savage would have probably would have had a second run with the Intercontinental title in 88 after beating Honky Tonk Man the month before on that main event special. But allegedly, Honky refused. He uh, didn't want to do the job. He thought it would hurt his his value were he to ever want to go and make the jump over to Turner. Uh, or I guess, Tur- I don't know if Turner owned it at that point. I think Turner bought it that year. But it might have been later in the year. But his perceived value, he felt, would have been... Uh, would have been hurt had he lost in front of 
none of this really, it, none, none of this makes total sense. There's always holes in these different stories and theories about what happened. And Honky has said himself, yeah, I didn't want to do the job. But maybe that's just him being a worker, you know, and, and kind of spinning things with his own narrative. Because he's talked about how with that many people watching, it would have hurt my value. Well, how is he going to, how, how did he know that there were going to be 33 million people watching on this live special? He wouldn't have known that. Nobody would have known that. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of inconsistencies here. I know there was some heat for a while for many years with uh, from from DiBiase's side because DiBiase had heard the same thing that he was in line for a run with the belt and Honky refused to do the job and so instead the belt went to Savage, and so he had heat with Honky for a while over the whole thing. DiBiase's always been of the of of the of the mind that yeah I was going to win the belt and. It ended up not happening. Instead, they changed their minds and they said, listen, we'll get more heat on you if you have your own belt made, which was the genesis of the million dollar belt. Right? He couldn't buy his way to the belt and so he had his own belt made. Whatever the truth, wherever the truth lies, I mean, there's other stories that there was a WWF magazine that spoiled the outcome of WrestleMania around that same time. It said, Randy Savage, new WWF champion, Meanwhile, that was an issue of the magazine, according to Bruce Pritchard, that would have closed in January. So if that's the case, that would seem to fly in the face of the idea that DiBiase was ever going to win. Again, I don't think anybody will ever be 100% sure of exactly, exactly what happened during that period. But the one thing I will say is that Ted DiBiase, he would have made a fine WWF champion. I know the the shows that he headlined on, or uh, he did some matches with Bam Bam Bigelow around that time. Uh, after Andre handed him the belt before Tunney, you know, declared the title vacant on TV, he did do some house shows, including one show I think in Madison Square Garden that I remember reading didn't do very well. They did uh, a much lower uh, crowd that night than they normally would. But you know, if, if let's say Hogan was not on the show and Savage was not on the show. Hogan and Savage, you know, they were they were legitimate draws at that time. And, and DiBiase didn't have the same level of drawing power. Did that dissuade them from putting the championship on DiBiase? Again, we'll, we'll never know. But I think he would have made a fine champion. Also on this show, Honky Tonk Man lost to Brutus the Barber Beefcake, but retained his Intercontinental title by DQ. There's a spot at the finish of this match where Jimmy Hart bonks the referee, referee Jimmy Corderas, in the head with his megaphone, and Corderas is knocked out. He was legitimately KO'd, but not by the megaphone shot. When he landed, he landed face first on the mat, and he landed, really, he landed chin first. And he knocked himself out. He knocked himself silly. If you watch the post-match back when the other referees come down to help him and help take him to the back. They're literally dragging him. <laughs> you can see his feet are dragging across the ground. And one of the referees is holding him up by the back of his pants. So he was legit knock silly for a while after that. And Demolition won their first WWF Tag Team titles on this show with a win over Strike Force. Their first of three. First team to... I think, were they the first team to three-peat... I want to say I could be wrong on that, but I want to say that Demolition was the first team to three peat in this company as tag team champions. 
Uh, I still own the Coliseum video version of this WrestleMania. It comes in a double box, double tape. And when you open up the uh, the two tapes outward, you open up the box, there's a little Hulk Hogan cardboard cutout that pops up of his head. <laughs> so I still have that. I actually have the first four uh, WrestleManias in their original uh, Coliseum video packaging. Now over to The Clash. Real quick here. This was a success on TBS with a 5.6 rating. Ric Flair made Sting a superstar. In their 45-minute draw for the World Championship, the decision went to a panel of judges who could not come to an agreement on a winner, and so Flair retained the title. But this was the match that made Sting. 30 years ago this week, on March 24th, 1991, WrestleMania 7 took place before 16,000 fans from the Los Angeles Sports Arena A far cry from the 100,000 fans that WWE was promoting all year leading up to this show for the nearby LA Coliseum. That was to have been the home of WrestleMania 7. They were going to try to top what they did at WrestleMania 3. Biggest WrestleMania of all time. Didn't quite work out that way. The company claimed that they moved the show due to threats made against Sergeant Slaughter who was portraying an Iraqi sympathizer character at that time. This was during the Gulf War period. And he was set to defend his WWF title that he had won from the Ultimate Warrior at the Royal Rumble against the former champion, Mr. America himself, Hulk Hogan. There were claims of bomb threats that were called in against the venue. Now, whether whether that's true or not in terms of... I, I don't doubt that Slaughter may have had people making threats at him or his family and stuff. Because wrestling was very real to a lot, pe- a, a lot more people then than it is now. Although it is still real to some. Uh, so I don't doubt that he may have had threats made against him on a, on a personal level. That is not why the show was moved. The show was not moved because of safety concerns. The show was not moved due to security reasons. This show was moved because a month before... The show was to take place. They had barely sold more than 15,000 tickets. 15,000 people in a 100,000-seat stadium is a bad look. Although I guess it would be uh, normal in today's age of COVID. But that is not a good look. So they moved the show to the smaller sports arena. Now, was it tasteless the way that they promoted this angle and promoted this main event? Absolutely. Even Bruce Pritchard, who is normally a man who has no shame. Bruce Pritchard even says, in hindsight, if they had it to do over again, they would have done things differently. Although I don't think you need the benefit of hindsight to know. <laughs> you could you could probably be in the moment at that time and know that, hey, this is kind of a, a tacky way of promoting this main event. Now, the war ended with Iraq's retreat from Kuwait on February 28th. So it was all the more ridiculous they had to continue to sell this angle for another four weeks after the conflict, after the war was basically over. They had to pretend the war was still going on. Hogan appeared on an episode of Primetime Wrestling and claimed that the moment he pinned Sergeant Slaughter at WrestleMania would be the exact moment that Iraq would surrender because they would realize any effort to continue the war at that point would be futile. So there you have it. Hulkamania single-handedly ended the Gulf War. We can add that to the list of tall tales told by Hulk Hogan over the years. But hey, it could have been worse. 
Pritchard claims there was an initial idea months earlier. I don't know that it ever got to the serious stage, and thank God it didn't. But with a straight face, he does claim that there was an idea of turning Tugboat heel. Tugboat was aligned with Hogan on television as his buddy, as his friend, to try to give Tugboat some rub. And I guess the idea was that Tugboat would eventually turn heel on Hogan, and they would make him Sheik Tugboat. I guess he would be the Iraqi sympathizer, and he would be Sheik Tugboat. And probably the champion, I guess, heading into WrestleMania. <laughs> Although he does say that they probably would have ended up with a different name. Sheik Tugboat was the initial idea, but that might not have been the actual uh, name he would have ended up with. Bob Costas thought the angle was so tasteless he pulled out of a planned appearance on the show. He was going to be debating the merits of instant replay in pro wrestling with New York Yankees owner George Steinbrenner. He was instead replaced by former NFL player Paul McGuire, who during the segment called Steinbrenner a butthead while Vince McMahon moderated the debate. Costas told the Miami Herald, Under the circumstances, I don't think doing the show would be in the best of taste. Roseanne Barr and Tom Arnold were announced for the show at one point. They also pulled out weeks before. But they had plenty of other celebrities on the show. This was a pretty celebrity-heavy edition of WrestleMania. We had Alex Trebek, Regis Philbin, Chuck Norris, Henry Winkler, Lou Ferrigno, Marla Maples, Donald Trump, and Macaulay Culkin. While Willie Nelson saying god bless america hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No the Nasty Boys won the tag team titles that night from the Hart Foundation, and then they spent all night partying with Willie Nelson. And they even gifted him one of their tag team title belts as a souvenir. So the company, I, I don't know if they either had a fetch. A brand new one or a spare one they had laying around, but they were down one tag team belt. I wonder if Willie Nelson still has it. Somebody should ask Willie if he still has that tag team belt. Andre the Giant made his final WrestleMania appearance, walking out, barely walking out. It was very sad to see him in that state. Physically, though, you know, once once you get into that really late 80s, but especially 1990 onward in those last three years of his life, it was it was sad. You know, it was sad to watch how uh, crippled up he was. But Andre made his final WrestleMania appearance, providing an assist to the big boss man in his intercontinental title match with Mr. Perfect, although he was not successful in winning the championship. The Undertaker 
saw his streak of 21 consecutive WrestleMania victories, although he was not on 21 consecutive WrestleManias. He missed a couple of them, 10 and 16, but 21 consecutive WrestleMania wins, and it began with a win on this show over Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Undertaker was already being cheered by a vocal contingent of the audience as a babyface at this point. This was this was a year, almost a year before he even turned babyface. He was already being cheered like one in a lot of the different buildings. Jake the Snake Roberts beat Rick the Model Martell in a blindfold match. A lot of people shit on this match because, of course, it's not a great wrestling match. But I thought, as far as the state, because blindfold matches are just, they're, they're inherently difficult to do anyway. Obviously, they can see through the blindfold, but it's just a lot of slow plotting movements. And really, the way that, that, that Jake and Martell, I thought, played this up was perfect. And Jake was great because people loved Jake. And Jake would point to the crowd and he let the crowd guide him. So he would point and they would boo if Martell wasn't in that direction. But then if he was, they would cheer. And I don't know, just the way they put this whole thing together, I actually was very entertained by this match. And when Jake hit that DDT, just to show you how fucking over that move was at one time, when he finally hit him with that DDT, that place went nuts. And you knew that that was the end. So I enjoyed this. I enjoyed that match. It was the end. His, this I didn't enjoy. It was the end of Demolition. This being the smash and crush combination. With a loss to the team of Tenru and Katao. WWE was going to be co-promoting some shows in Japan with the SWS promotion of which Tenru was a big star. So this was a way, I guess, of making nice with them, I guess, by giving them a, a match at WrestleMania and giving them a win heading into this partnership. But it's very sad that it came at the expense of, of my personal favorite tag team in WWF history. Those final months of demolition in the company are depressing. To look back, I understand that Axe had a health issue and that's why they had to bring Crush in, but the way that team was treated, like once they signed the Legion of Doom, it was as if Demolition just didn't matter anymore. It's like, all right, well, we got these guys now. We got the real guys with spikes, and so you guys can go fuck off. I just thought that uh, the, the amount of disrespect shown to Demolition makes me very angry. LOD beat Power and Glory in less than 60 seconds in an interview on uh, World Wrestling Insanity about 10 years ago. Paul Roma revealed why the match was so short. Said, I blew out my elbow. I was in LA the next day for WrestleMania. Hercules was hurt. He could hardly walk. He retore his groin. When I got back from the hospital, Vince was in a meeting. I walked in. He stopped the meeting. My arm was in a sling. He walked out and said, what's up? I said, they say if I wrestle and hit my elbow, I could lose my arm. He starts with, oh, Jesus Christ, Paul. You know you got to do this. I said, but Vince, who's going to take care of my family? He said, oh, I got you covered. Don't worry about it. And I ended up going out there. I put on a skater's elbow pad. And wrapped it up. When I took that bump off the top of Animal's shoulders, I tried to protect myself as best I could so I wouldn't hit it. I made it through. I think they took 60 cc's of fluid out of my elbow as soon as I got to the back. Doctor said it was the most fluid he had ever seen taken out of an elbow in his life. Never seen anything like it. I had a choice, and I knew that if I did back out, I'd be done. No doubt in my mind, I would be done. 
Was I stupid? Yes. Would he have taken care of me and my family? Probably not. But it's the choice you make. If I had gone out there and lost my arm, then I'm the fool. Even if he took care of my family, I'm still down an arm. And I went back and I watched it just to see, you know, because he mentions that Hercules tore his groin. And if you go back and watch the match, I mean, it's not very long. You can see Hercules is clearly favoring his his uh, his crotch <laughs> uh, because he's moving around very gingerly, and the few bumps he takes, he immediately grabs his. I mean, basically, he grabs his crotch. So clearly, there was something going on down there. I mean, that's for him to know. And uh, Roma was out there with a the big elbow pad on. So yeah, obviously they were hurt. So I always wonder why would they job these guys out so quickly. And I guess that would uh, that would explain it. I I am very glad that FTR in uh, in AEW has revived the old power and glory powerplex finish. I only wish they would use it as an actual finish because I always loved that move. I know Roma and Hercules were just kind of a one of these thrown together tag teams, and Hercules was just I mean he did nothing at that point. He was just this big jacked up dude by then, and you know kind of lumbered around and really didn't do shit, but. I love that finish. I just love the just the visual of it. So I'm glad to see it at least uh, resuscitated in some way today. The Ultimate Warrior defeated the Macho King, Randy Savage, in a career-ending match. This was the highlight of WrestleMania 7. This was the match of the night. This was one of the matches of the year. In 1991, it is one of my all-time favorite matches in WrestleMania history. Uh, these two went out there. They told a great story. The match ended with Warrior putting his boot on Savage's chest as the referee counted three. This was uh, Warrior's revenge for Savage costing him the title at the Royal Rumble, hitting him in the head with the scepter. That's how Sergeant Slaughter got the belt. But the real story here came when the match was over. Warrior takes his leave. Queen Sherry is very upset. Sensational Sherry gets in the ring and she's yelling and screaming at Savage because she realizes that her meal ticket is gone. Savage's career is over. What happens to her? And she starts kicking Savage in the ribs and she's beating him up. And what they had done at the beginning of this match, they showed in the crowd and not even like in the front row. She was sitting like way in the back, like in the aisle way was Elizabeth, who had not been seen, I believe she had not been seen since WrestleMania the previous year, on television. And she looked a little bit different. She had kind of cut her hair a little bit. But there's Elizabeth sitting in the crowd, and you knew at that point. All right, they're they're showing her for a reason. And so when the match is over and Sherry is beating the hell out of Savage, they keep cutting back to Elizabeth. And then finally, Elizabeth can just take no more. Even though she and Savage had basically been broken up on TV for about two or three years, she she couldn't stand to see him embarrassed and beaten like this. And so she hops the barricade and she runs down to the ring. She climbs inside. She grabs Sherry by the hair and she tosses her out of the ring. And the sports arena is going nuts. Savage has no idea that she's even in the ring. He gets up. And he sees Elizabeth and he can't believe it. And then he sees Sherry outside and he realizes what was going on and who was beating him up. It was Sherry. And now he sees Elizabeth and he doesn't know what to do. He's so torn. 
And finally, and, and, and Elizabeth is in tears, and the two of them come together in the middle of the ring and embrace, and it's this unbelievable, just emotional moment. Women in the crowd are crying. Bobby Heenan is making fun of them. Oh, she must have tied her shoes too tight. This woman over here has tears running down her, her face. She must have had the chili dog with onions. <laughs> not, the, not the sentimental type was uh, Bobby Heenan. But this was, I mean, you know, WWE likes to talk about, we tell stories, we make movies, right? And a lot of times you hear that, and it it sounds so cheesy, like, you guys are a fucking wrestling company. Like, just, you know, enough with this whole thing, oh, we tell stories. But it's true. Some of the best storyline, and the word story is in there, some of the best storylines in in wrestling history told this great long-term story of maybe one guy's uh, descent from being a babyface to a heel like Bret Hart in 97, or the mega power split, right, where they were together for so long, and then Savage grew jealous, and there have been some great stories told in wrestling over the years. I mean, we can I could be here for an hour listing all of them. This was fantastic storytelling. These two people who were together for so long had split apart, and this woman couldn't stand to see her man beaten up by this other woman. Savage realizes the mistake he had made, and all along, he loved this woman all along. His love never wavered for Miss Elizabeth. And there he is with her up on his shoulder in the ring celebrating, and he does the whole thing where Elizabeth went to go open the ropes for him. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to open the ropes for you. Bobby Heenan is like, he's turning into a big softy. And then Savage poses for the crowd one last time in what was supposed to be his retirement, And off they go. This was great. This was great. And, you know, watching this moment in the past, look, hey, it's even emotional for me when I watch it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Maybe I'm a big softy. But this is one of the greatest moments in WrestleMania history. Very sad that neither one of them are around anymore because can you imagine in front of today's audience as much as with, you know, the nostalgia and everything, if you had some kind of Macho Man Elizabeth reunion, you know, on like one of the WrestleManias in a segment or something, how great that would have been. It's uh, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame they're not around anymore, but one of my favorite moments. And then in the main event, Hulk Hogan. Beat Sergeant Slaughter to become the first ever three-time WWE champion. By January, the Warrior experiment was over. They had taken the title off of him. There was never any plan to do a Warrior-Hogan rematch. 
So the torch wasn't so much passed the year before at WrestleMania 6 as it was being kept warm. Only to go right back to Hogan. 25 years ago this week on March 24th, 1996. WCW presented one of the worst matches of all time at its uncensored pay-per-view. We had some fun last week with Uncensored 95 here in this segment with Hulk Hogan beating Vader in an Indian strap match by dragging Ric Flair around the ring who wasn't even part of the match. In fact, Flair was retired at the time. This time, the brain-trusted WCW decided to book an 8-on-2 handicap match with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage taking on what they called the Alliance to End Hulkamania. How come it wasn't the Alliance to End Macho Madness? How come Savage always had to take a backseat to Hogan? But the Alliance to End Hulkamania consisted of Ric Flair, Lex Luger, Arn Anderson, Meng, the Barbarian, Kevin Sullivan, and two newcomers in Z-Gangsta, the former Zeus, and Jeep Swenson, who is in there playing the Ultimate Solution, who initially debuted on TV as the Final Solution, until somebody smartened them up. That that was the same name Adolf Hitler gave to his plan to exterminate the Jews during the Holocaust. So they thought, yeah, it might be, might be a good move to change it up a little bit. Let's switch to a different name. He also had a part in the movie uh, Swenson did, in the movie No Holds Barred. So he and Zeus were uh, very familiar. I believe in the movie, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Swenson played uh, Lugwrench. I think he was killed in his fight with Zeus. So it was nice to see him uh, show some forgiveness here for Zeus killing him (laughs) in the movie. It's nice to see that they could put their differences aside here. Now, Brian Pillman was originally advertised for the heel team, but he informed the company that he wouldn't be there because he was still recovering from throat surgery that he had had the week before. Pillman in his life, you know, he had the raspy voice and everything. I think he had polyps, constantly uh, polyps removed from his throat. So he had something like 32 or 33 throat surgeries going back to his childhood. So I guess this was one of those throat surgeries that he had had the, uh, the week before. But look, Pillman was not stupid. Pillman may have been a lot of things. He was not a dumb man. He wanted no part of this shit show. And he wanted no part because he knew. He knew Hogan was just going to bury all the heels. I don't blame him for backing out of this. This was billed as a doomsday cage match. And the rules were as follows. Had three floors. Hogan and Savage would have to start on the top floor and work their way down to the bottom level to either escape or score the winning fall. They never explicitly said how they could win the match, which would explain how this all unfolded. They never actually bothered to explain this on TV, which was obvious. They probably never bothered to tell the wrestlers either because nobody seemed to have a clue what the rules were. They built this giant structure next to the entranceway, so the actual ring sat empty for this match, which I'm sure was just delightful for the fans who were actually in the arena that night. (laughs) I mean, it was kind of hard to see what was going on just watching it on TV. I can't imagine being in the uh, upper level of the building that night that they couldn't see a damn thing. Hogan and Savage, on one level, they used powder to blind Flair and Arn Anderson. They escaped down to the next level. Bobby Heenan claimed the match as 
bigger than the Super Bowl or the World Series. Tony Schiavone called it spectacular. That's one way to put it. So the action spills outside the cage, which I thought meant the end of the match, but apparently not. Z-Gangsta and the walking Royd finally make their way out. And yes, they were nowhere to be found for the first 90% of this match. I have no idea where they were or what they were doing, but they finally make their way out. They drag Hogan and Savage back inside on the lower level, and things appear very bleak for the Mega Powers, when who should come to their rescue but the Booty Man, who hands them a pair of frying pans, and I believe he may have handed them some more white powder. I I don't remember if he gave it to them or not. I know Hogan and Savage used powder earlier in the match as well, Or at least they claimed it was powder. But, uh, you know, Beefcake, when he was working part-time years later, he had fallen on tough times. And he may have been living with his parents or his mom or something, I don't remember. But Beefcake, uh, years later, was working part-time as a uh, toll booth clerk. He was working as a toll booth clerk. He once got a train station shut down when he stepped away from his booth and accidentally left behind a bag of cocaine. This is according to an article at the time in the Boston Herald. This was this was real news in Boston at that time. A subway rider thought that, I guess spotted it, and thought that it may have been anthrax. So they evacuated the station, shut the whole thing down, and they sent a hazmat team in there in their suits for fear that it may have been a terrorist attack, only to find out that it was just cocaine. The deputy police chief said that uh, Brother Brutai admitted to cocaine possession, and he did end up going to rehab, uh, drug rehab after that. So, I'm just saying, when there is a white powdery substance laying in the ring and Brother Brutai is there, let us not assume that it is just baby powder. The bigger question is, why frying pans? That's what I'd like to know. I can never understand that. So, Hogan and Savage, they use the the crack to blind the heels and start whacking these giant men with the tiniest frying pans that you've ever seen. Then comes the finish. Oh, what a finale this was. With Lex Luger knocking out Ric Flair with a loaded glove, but as he goes to strike Randy Savage, because Flair is holding Savage, As he goes to strike Savage, Savage ducks. Luger stops himself. He stops himself, full stop. And then proceeds to go ahead and punch Ric Flair in the head anyway. (laughs) He follows through anyway, hits Ric Flair. Hogan grabs Savage and says, let's get the hell out of here. And they head for the cage door, only for Savage to realize, oh shit, I think I'm supposed to pin the guy first. And then he scampers over and he pins Ric Flair. The world heavyweight champion. Of all the people in this match that you had to pin, he pins the world heavyweight champion before quickly exiting the cage. He forgot to pin Flair because nobody knew what the fucking rules of the match were. Yet another uncensored pay-per-view where Ric Flair takes the losing fall. Really, Debo couldn't take the losing fall there? Was it that important that Debo couldn't take the losing fall? I don't even think he was ever used again after this. You couldn't pay him just to do the job here at the end of this match. Would it not have looked more impressive for them to pin a big guy like him? 
24 years ago this week, on March 23rd, 1997, WWE presented WrestleMania 13, titled Heat. The very definition of a one-match show, if I've ever seen one. And if you take that one match out, you have one of the worst WrestleManias of all time. It is among the worst even with this match. But what a match it was. It was also the final WrestleMania to feature Vince McMahon as an announcer. Rocky Maivia made his WrestleMania debut defending the Intercontinental title in a match against the Sultan, a man who years later would claim that he ran down a man in cold blood for The Rock. And Ahmed Johnson tagged with the Legion of Doom in a win over the Nation of Domination in a what I thought was a pretty fun Chicago street fight where they threw everything at each other, including quite literally... The Kitchen Sink, which Hawk brought down to the ring with him. Years later, Road Warrior Animal would claim that Ahmed Johnson stole the spiked shoulder pads that he wore that night. I guess after the show was over, he he never returned them. He took them and did whatever, uh, you know, God knows what with them. He called him basically a thief. And Ahmed, it it got back to Ahmed during a shoot interview that he did in 2006. I guess he was not aware of the comments that Animal made or, or aware that he even had heat with Animal. And uh, you can find the clip, it's on YouTube. So as the interviewer is explaining to Ahmed Johnson what Animal uh, had to say, he said he was unaware that he had any heat with Animal, but that if he did, he said, and I quote, fuck him. Ahmed says he was very tight with Hawk, and Hawk gifted the shoulder pads to him, and along with a New Japan jacket. And after Hawk died, he claims that he donated the shoulder pads to the Sportatorium in Dallas for an exhibit that they had. It might have been some kind of Hall of Fame exhibit of some kind where they take pieces of memorabilia from a a certain superstar. So he claims he donated it to some kind of uh, exhibit. And it's very strange because the Sportatorium was demolished months before Hawk passed away in 2003. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and and assume that maybe he's talking about some other place in Dallas that might uh, have wrestling, you know, memorabilia in it. But I I just, I I laugh when I first saw that. He was like, well, I didn't even know I had heat with Animal, but if he said that to me, fuck that guy. (laughs) It's like, he knows where to find me. Ahmed doesn't take no shit. He goes, if he wants to find me, I'm not a hard man to find. We can do this face to face. I guess now they can't. But at the time, they could have. The original main event for this show was to have been a rematch from the previous year's WrestleMania between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Only this time, Shawn would put Bret over just the same way that Bret did for Shawn the year before in the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12. Bret was going to win the Royal Rumble in 97. I've talked about this in previous segments, and Vince Russo has also told the story. He was a guest. Russo at the time would play a character on Livewire. You know, the, uh, the Saturday morning call-in show called Vic Venom. That was also his uh, the name that he used in the magazine for his column. And he had been a guest on an episode of Livewire leading up to the Royal Rumble that year. And he was asked, who do you think, who do you predict is going to win the Royal Rumble match? And he said, well, Bret Hart's going to win. Not because anybody told him. He wasn't even you know the, the head writer at the time. He just thought, like legitimately thought, Well, it's pretty obvious that Bret Hart is probably going to win the Royal Rumble. So he blurted out Bret's name. 
And Vince McMahon chewed him out after the show. Oh, you spoiled it. Why would you spoil the outcome of the Royal Rumble? And Russo said to him, dude, (laughs) I didn't. I just said the name that I legitimately thought was going to win the match. So that's why Vince McMahon changed it to Stone Cold cheating to win the Royal Rumble in 97. Fast forward a few weeks after the Rumble to the Thursday Raw Thursday Live special in February. Shawn Michaels is scheduled to defend the championship in a rematch against Psycho Sid. In his book, this is the way that Bret Hart recounts the uh, happenings of the time. Says Vince McMahon tells him the new plan, which is that Bret will screw Shawn Michaels out of the title in his match with Sid, and then in the final four match at In Your House, Shawn will screw Bret out of a win. Because before the belt was vacated, that final four match was going to be a match to determine who would go on to WrestleMania to challenge for the title. So Sean would simply return the favor and screw Brett out of a win. And then at WrestleMania, it would be The Undertaker challenging Sid for the title. And Bret Hart would wrestle Shawn Michaels underneath, I guess you could say in the uh, in the co-main of Mania that year in a ladder match with Shawn Michaels putting his hair on the line. His long flowing locks. And Brett claims that Vince McMahon told him that you're going to cut off all of Shawn's hair at the end of that match. Now, I have no idea what would have been hanging from the ceiling in a ladder match with no title on the line. I mean, maybe uh, you know barber shears for Brett to use, possibly, from, uh, from Brother Brutai. This is, but again, this is what he claims that Vince told him. I find it impossible to conceive of the idea that Shawn Michaels would have allowed Bret Hart to cut off all of his hair. But when Bret pressed Vince on why he was changing plans all of a sudden, Vince told him it was too predictable. I'm sensing a pattern here. If it's too predictable, then it needs to be changed. I mean, look, you never want to be too predictable, but this idea that predictable is somehow a bad thing, predictable does not mean bad. If it makes sense and it produces the desired outcome, predictable is perfectly fine. You just don't want to overdo it. But then, of course, came Shawn Michaels' knee injury when he lost his smile. He lost his smile. He lost his smile. Where did his smile go? Lost his smile. And the news that he would need potentially career-ending knee surgery. Brett said that he was in the back, standing next to Undertaker when the news broke. Undertaker turned to him and said, I'll believe it when I see the scar. He says that Undertaker said the little fucker doesn't want to drop the belt. (laughs) And so down the hallway went Brett, Undertaker, and Sid. They all went down the hallway to Vince's office. They walk in there. They said Vince was in like legitimately near tears about the situation with Sean. He was legitimately concerned that Sean had this devastating injury and his career could be over. And he was going to lose one of his big stars. Although apparently Vince had, you know, I guess he had this personal affection for, for Shawn Michaels. Hell, if you believe Road Warrior Hawk, it was a little more than just a personal affection for Shawn Michaels. But we won't spread those... uh We won't spread those wild rumors and accusations here on this podcast. No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. But he said Vince was in near tears about the situation with Sean and 
This is when Vince McMahon informed all of them of the new plan, which was to have Brett win the belt at the pay-per-view. And then he would drop it the next night to Sid to set up Bret Hart against Steve Austin at WrestleMania and The Undertaker challenging Sid for the championship. The submission stipulation for Bret and Austin was added a few weeks later. Austin has said that he was at home. He had a minor knee injury. Uh, actually, I think when he did the run-in in the match to cost Bret the belt, you could see him limping back to the, the dressing room. I think that's where he had tweaked his knee. So he was at home watching a taped episode of Raw on television like the rest of us when all of a sudden they announced that this is going to be a submission match. And he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Nobody had told him. He goes, I'm not a submission wrestler. I don't have any submissions. I mean, I guess he had the million dollar dream, but it's like, I don't have any submission holds. What are we going to have a submission match for? But the, the, the Bret Hart-Steve Austin match is not just one of the best matches in WrestleMania history. Easily, easily a top three match all time at WrestleMania. It is one of the best matches, period, in company history. It was a masterclass in how to pull off a successful double turn. We had the iconic image of Austin, blood pouring down his face, trying to break out of the sharpshooter, but passing out from the blood loss. Ken Shamrock, the guest referee, right, calling for the bell. Brett, not content with the damage that he had inflicted after months of being fucked over by Austin. Going back after the knee, after the match was already over. Ken Shamrock gives Brett this great waist lock. I mean, he he propelled him into the air. This great waist lock takedown. Brett teases fighting him. The crowd wants to see it. Brett does the heel move and backs off to a chorus of boos. This, this was Brett's magnum opus here at WrestleMania. Fantastic stuff. And his night wasn't over yet. He and Sean may not have had their main event match, but they were both involved in the main event. Sean was on commentary. He danced his way down to the ring. He's posing and prancing and dancing around, hardly looking like somebody who had just weeks earlier been told, you know, his career might be over. He was in the ring crying about how he may never wrestle again. He looked pretty good. He also, by the way, on his way to the ring, flashed an NWO for life hand gesture, which got him a lot of heat. And you also had Brett coming out here at the end of the show, trying to interfere before the match. He got powerbombed by Sid. Then the match gets underway. He came back out again later for the finish. Caused the distraction. That led to Sid losing and getting the tombstone. Undertaker wins. And no, I don't believe the urban legend, which is all it is. And Sid has denied it. But I mean, look, Sid would deny it anyway because it's embarrassing. I don't believe it, though that Sid crapped his pants during this match at WrestleMania. And I haven't heard Undertaker get asked about it either. In all those interviews Undertaker did last year promoting his documentary, I don't think anybody asked him about it. So I don't believe it to be true. Only way to know is to ask Undertaker. I'm sure, you know, if if Sid did, I mean, Undertaker would have smelled it. So as far as I know, that's all it is, is an urban legend. But we were not even a full three months yet into this year and undertaker's win was the fifth wwe title change already in 1997 already michaels beat sid for the belt at the royal rumble then vacant won the belt then bret hart won it in the final four match then sid won it back the next night and then undertaker beat sid for the belt here at wrestlemania talk about hot potato but you know i wonder though if sean had wrestled if Shawn Michaels didn't have his knee injury and he had wrestled Brett on that show, 
Stone Cold would have been the odd man out that year because you would have had Undertaker and Sid, Brett and Sean. What would Austin have done? And I would argue that he had no bigger, more important match in his career than the one he had here with Bret Hart. So it's one of those things where things just sort of happen for a reason and it's amazing to think about how different one's career, a different path their career might have taken with one little change or one little tweak here and there. 22 years ago this week, on March 22nd, 1999, one of the more legendary segments in Raw history took place with Stone Cold Steve Austin driving a Coors Light beer truck down to the ring in the middle of an opening promo with Vince McMahon, The Rock, and his corporation. I had this at number 19 on my own list for the top 30 greatest Raw moments way back when I did that on Sound Off episode 228. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, for those who care enough to go back and listen to that, I think that was uh, 2012 when I did that list. We were on the road to WrestleMania 15. And Austin told Rock he was going to take his ass to Philadelphia, check right into the SmackDown Hotel, roll right into room 316, and burn that son of a bitch to the ground. Only he said it with a lot more fire than I just did. Back when people knew how to cut promos and get people hyped and invested in a big main event match. And Vince McMahon became the first man to swim on dry land as he tried to swim his way out of out of the beer that Austin was spraying at him. A great segment, not so great in what they did in the main event, having Austin pin the big show in their very first encounter on free television six days before WrestleMania. Remember what I talked about before about Nitro and hot shotting? Just weeks after Big Show, no less, had debuted in the company, they just threw out the first match with him and Austin on free TV, and Austin just stuttered him and pinned him. Did that really need to happen? Seems kind of unnecessary to me. I thought it was weird then, and it feels every bit as unnecessary today. But the goal was to pop a big rating, and to that end, they were wildly successful. The show did a 6.4 Nielsen rating up against the final, or uh, not the final, but the annual Spring Break episode of Nitro, which did a 3.5 rating. Over 7 million viewers for Raw that night and the final quarter hour with Austin against Big Show. which ran. And if you want to know why they did this match, and this ran opposite a main event on Nitro of Scott Steiner against Chris Jericho. To say that it was a slaughter really doesn't do it justice. Raw won with a 7.1 in that final quarter to Nitro's 2.9. And the five-minute overrun for Raw did 
1.6 million viewers watching live. It almost doesn't even seem real. It just does not even seem real. Six days later, on March 28th, it was WrestleMania 15, The Raging Climax, and a very appropriate name for an Attitude Era show. Don't tell Peacock. Months after winning the ill-fated Brawl for All, Bart Gunn got knocked the fuck out in a Brawl for All match with Tough Man champion Butterbean. Gunn was told takedowns would not be allowed in the fight and he would have to box him straight up, which led to him being knocked out in just 35 seconds. They set the poor guy up to fail. I, You know, that's basically what happened here. Gorilla Monsoon was introduced to the audience in his last public appearance as one of the judges at ringside for the fight. This was just months before his death. And he was looking just as frail as I have ever seen him. It just made me very sad to see him that way. Undertaker beat the Big Show, or uh, the Big Boss Man. A lot of big people in WWE at the time. Beat the Big Boss Man in a terribly boring Hell in a Cell match where Boss Man was hung from the cell after the match by a noose with the use of a harness that was hidden under his flak jacket. Michael Cole spoiled the finish of the main event earlier in the night when plugging their post-show on the Home Shopping Network with, quote, the new WWF champion. Oops. He said this a good 25 minutes before the main event even hit the ring that night. And uh, that has since been edited off of the network version of WrestleMania. Well, I guess now uh, it would be Peacock here in the U.S. They love editing things out. Stone Cold Steve Austin beat The Rock to become the first, and to date I believe the only man ever, to win the WWE title in back-to-back WrestleManias. If you don't count what The Undertaker did at WrestleMania 23 and 24, because that was the World Heavyweight title, this was the WWE title, I believe Austin would be the only person to have ever done that. 21 years ago this week, on March 28, 2000, at a SmackDown taping in San Antonio, Texas, Stephanie McMahon became the third McMahon family member in just over a year to win a championship, beating Jacqueline in the main event to become the new women's champion. Her father won the WWF title on SmackDown in September of 99, and her brother won the uh, European title in 99 as well. 19 years ago this week, on March 25, 2002, WWE held its first draft lottery for what it called a brand extension, dividing talent between Raw and SmackDown for the first time with two storyline co-owners, Vince McMahon and Ric Flair. Ric Flair representing SmackDown, Ric Flair representing Raw. The plan had been for Stone Cold to head up the Raw roster with The Rock heading over to SmackDown, but Austin walked out on the company the night after WrestleMania. Wouldn't be back for several weeks. And so, the way things uh, shook out here, Flair drafted Undertaker, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, X-Pac, Kane, Rob Van Dam, Booker T, Big Show, Brock Lesnar, Mr. Perfect, and other people as well. I just love that Flair drafted Perfect. That's, That's just great. That is great. Vince McMahon drafted The Rock, Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, Hulk Hogan, Chris Jericho, Edge, and DDP, among others. In the main event, Triple H beat Chris Jericho and Stephanie McMahon in a handicap match, pinning Stephanie, which, per the stipulation, forced her to leave WWE. Until four months later, 
when she returned as the new general manager of SmackDown. 11 years ago this week, on March 28, 2010, WrestleMania 26 from Glendale, Arizona, only the third to ever be held in an open-air venue. After WrestleMania 9 from Caesars Palace and 24 in Orlando, 19 in Seattle, you could kind of see outside a little bit, but they were indoors. They had It was a retractable roof. It was not open that night, so that doesn't count. Bret Hart had his first WrestleMania match since his classic with Steve Austin in Chicago. This was the exact opposite of that classic in Chicago. He had a match here with Vince McMahon, and it was a disaster. Vince McMahon thought he had swerved Bret by bringing out all of the Hart family members to ringside his lumberjacks who would be against Bret. But then Bret comes out. Turns out he swerved Vince and revealed that all of the family members were on his side. Which really wasn't much of a swerve, but that's what they were going for. What followed was a far too long plotting match where Brett could take any bumps. I mean, Brett obviously has the history of concussions and the stroke and everything else. Uh, I don't know if he had had his bout with uh, prostate cancer or that. I think that might have come later on. But the bigger thing is that Brett had a policy with Lloyds of London that did not allow him uh, to take bumps or any kind of blows to the head. So he was very limited in uh, in a number of ways in what he could do. So that certainly uh, didn't help. But on top of that, Brett just destroyed Vince McMahon with an uncomfortable number of chair shots. That It just got to the point where you felt sorry for him. It damn near turned Vince McMahon babyface. But the backstage meeting with Vince and the entire Hart family to map out the match sounds far more entertaining than the match itself was. This comes based on details shared by Natty, Natty Neidhart, and Tyson Kidd on an episode of Talk is Jericho from six years ago. They said that it was the first time the entire family had been together in years since Stu Hart's funeral. There was a lot of fracture within the family going back to what happened with Owen back in 99. So the family was already very kind of uh, spread out. So this is the first time in a while all of them are, are together. First issue, first issue popped up a few days before WrestleMania when Natty's aunt went off on Johnny Ace. Apparently this woman caused the scene because she was hungry. And she felt that she shouldn't have to pay for her own food. And so she let Johnny Ace and everybody else within earshot know that she was very upset about this. Brett was just generally very angry with all of the all the family members and you know just the way that they were behaving like children. He reminded them that Tyson and Natty and Harry Smith, who was still working there at the time, they all have to work in WWE full-time. This is their full-time job. Unlike everybody else who's only coming in for a one-off. And Brett's brother Ross pipes up and he asks the question, well, why should our behavior affect Tyson and Natty and Harry? To which Brett asks him, he goes, do you have rocks in your head, Ross? Then during the planning session, I can just imagine the room that they were in planning all of this out. This is the day of WrestleMania. And Vince McMahon is laying out all of the plans for what they're going to do in this match. 
And all of a sudden, he's interrupted by Bruce Hart, who says, no, 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 this doesn't make any sense. This basically turns you babyface. And you know what? Bruce was right. Bruce was right. But then he started pitching all these other ideas and stuff for SummerSlam that would go all the way to SummerSlam. And he pitched having Batista. Batista should be involved. Because Batista was involved in that one segment on TV where Brett was going to beat up Vince. And Batista ran out and made the save. And he kind of beat up Brett a little bit. And so we need to have Batista in this match. And Michael Hayes was there. Michael Hayes calmly reminds Bruce that uh, Big Dave had kind of a big match already coming up later on in the show. That would have been his title defense against John Cena. So, no. There will not be a Batista cameo here in this match. So, Brett finally had to interject. He tells Bruce to shut up. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And then Natty's mom stands up. That's Jim Neidhart's wife. She just, she stands up in the middle of all this and says, I think Jim should be involved. And Natty said that her father was the most normal one of the bunch. Of everybody in the family, she claimed that her father was the most normal. And so he decided to keep his mouth shut in the meeting. He didn't say a word. If Jim Neidhart is considered the most normal, if the anvil is the normal one in this family, then holy shit, what does that say about the rest of the bunch? Natty said that, hey, you know, for his part, Vince McMahon was highly amused and entertained by all of this. They do sound like the perfect family, I will say. And I'm not a big fan of this reality TV garbage. But they do sound like the perfect family for a reality television show. Where you, It's one of these shows where you just end up hating every single one of these people. But yet you can't look away. And you tune in loyally every single week. And in the main event, The Undertaker beat Shawn Michaels in a streak versus career match the first non-title match to headline a wrestlemania show since lt and bam bam did it back in 95 they learned their lesson from the year before not putting their match on last and it is still the greatest wrestlemania match that i've ever seen that match from the year prior wrestlemania 25 they had a tall order in front of them here trying to top that classic i don't think they topped it but they came damn close Matches are very comparable. We even got a jumping tombstone finish by The Undertaker to end the career of Shawn Michaels. Jim Ross was supposed to call that match. Kevin Dunn had told him to bring his tuxedo, which he did. 
Vince McMahon personally wanted him to work the main event. He was so excited. He brought his wife, Jan, with him to the show. To hear him recount this story in his book, Under the Black Hat, is really sad. He was so excited. People were coming up to him that that day or, or you know, whatever, the, the day before. Hey, JR, are you here to work the show? And he would go, yup, Sean and Taker. He was so proud to tell people that he was working the show. Months earlier, he had suffered his third Bell's palsy attack. So that's why this was such a big deal to him to come back. His first time back, calling a big match, Sean's last match. When he got to the hotel, he saw Kevin Dunn uh, at the bar. And he waved, Kevin Dunn waved him over. Kind of waved to JR to come on over. So Jim Ross, you know, he puts his stuff away first in his room and he comes back down and he goes over to Kevin Dunn and Kevin Dunn goes, I got some bad news. We're not going to use you. And Jim Ross says, but I, I brought my tux just like you asked me to. And Dunn goes, we don't think you're healed enough. Which translated basically means we don't like the way your face looks. That's really what he was saying. Whether it was his call, Vince, whoever it was who made the final call, they didn't like the way he looked. He goes, but Kevin, I brought my wife with me. He's just, sorry, JR, we're not using you. And that was it. That was the whole conversation. Kevin Dunn went back to uh, whatever it was he was doing, watching, you know, Woody Woodpecker cartoons or whatever it is that he does. And just like that, Jim Ross was bumped off the show in favor of Michael Cole. Shawn Michaels and Undertaker, they lobbied very hard for him to call their match. Shawn even said, we were told under no circumstances are you calling this match. Vince did not want to hear about this anymore. He was sick of hearing us talk about it. And what's cool is that when the show... So, you know, he was up in the skybox for the show, wasn't used. What's cool is that when the show is over, right? So these two guys just had this epic main event. Shawn Michaels is probably a ball of emotions right now. He just wrestled what he believes to be the last match of his career, which turned out to not be the last match of his career, which just uh, in the last week or so, he did some interview with the New York Post and actually admitted that he regrets uh, doing that crown jewel match in Saudi Arabia a few years ago. I think we all regret that he did that match. But here you have these two guys, and what they did was they sent word for JR to meet them out by the buses after the pay-per-view. Across from the hotel was this giant parking lot with uh, several tour buses that the top talents would, you know, ride around in. Undertaker had positioned the buses in such a way to block out anybody from seeing them, like kind of giving them their personal space. And he and Shawn Michaels were already sitting there with boxes of beer. There were three bottles of Jack Daniels. Undertaker is sitting there smoking a cigar. And they wanted JR to come and join them. And they all just sat around and they bullshitted all night. And I just thought, again, you, you hear him write about this in the book and you can tell how much that meant to him after what probably was just this completely embarrassing, demoralizing you know, news that he had just been given, especially after going around and telling everybody, yep, I'm working the show, and then he doesn't. It's got to be embarrassing for him. And the fact that Sean and Undertaker, you know, did that for him after this big match, and they're just sitting out there by themselves, and they, you know, made it a point to 
summon for him, to call him over just to kind of hang with him and give him that moment is a very cool thing. You can really tell how much of a rock his wife Jan was to him when you read these stories and you hear him talk about her, which makes it all the more heartbreaking that four years ago this week, on March 22nd, 2017, Jim Ross's wife Jan died after suffering a catastrophic brain injury. She was struck from behind by a 2000 Mercury Grand Marquis, driven by a 17-year-old while she was riding her Vespa scooter near their home to the gym. The following year, a judge dismissed the vehicular homicide charge against the driver, despite objections from the state. JR tweeted this week, My late wife Jan died four years ago today. Still can't believe that she's gone, but we had 25-plus amazing years together, for which I am eternally thankful. She would have loved my gig at AEW and living on the beach. Jan made me a better man. And that is this week. A most historic week in wrestling history. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I had fun recording it. Keep sending me your questions. I I know I've uh, gotten away from the mailbag the last couple of weeks. This was always going to be a very busy period with the history stuff, because we're right in the middle of all the WrestleManias and everything, so, uh, you know, that's why we haven't gotten to them in the last couple of weeks. But send me your questions, because I am going to be getting to them soon. I read everything you send me, thesolomonster at gmail.com. we got another live inbox on YouTube coming up in a few weeks. On uh, Sunday night, April 18th, I'll talk more about that as we get closer because we are getting ever so close to 700 episodes of The Sound Off. So we'll have a normal show that Sunday, but then we'll celebrate on YouTube that night and we'll do your questions. So keep emailing me, follow me on Twitter at Solomonster, and again, thank you to the people who are still signing up to be channel members on YouTube. If you go to youtube.com slash thesolomonster on any of the videos or the main page... If you're not already a member, you'll see the join button. Please click that button. Take a look at what's there. And uh, if you would like to join, you can pick the tier that works best for you. I'm uh, working to get up more retro audio for the uh, $9.99 tier and other little fun things as well. So be part of our little family, our little community on YouTube by becoming a member. I'm going to be back with you on Wednesday night on YouTube for AEW Dynamite, the final stream for the month of March. And then, uh, oh, and I remind people every year about this because invariably when April Fool's Day hits, people forget what day it is. And there'll be people who are tweeting stuff about a big wrestling release or, oh my God, this happened or this guy got fired. Just remember, because I have to remind myself every year, be aware of what day it is on Thursday and uh, don't be misled by some of the fake news that will be out there because Thursday is April Fool's Day. And I will be back with you for episode 698 of The Sound Off next Sunday. That will be the final uh, Sound Off before everything gets going on WrestleMania week. We're about to head into... You think the last few weeks have been busy just with the history stuff. Wait until we get into everything that's going on in the next few weeks in terms of uh, all the current stuff plus the history stuff. we got a lot of fun stuff coming up. I hope you'll join me for it all. Be well. Stay safe. Have yourselves a fantastic week. And I will see you back here for 698 next Sunday. Until then, take care, guys.
The Solemn Monster sounds off. That Shane McMahon segment with him and Braun Strowman from Monday night, this will go down among the all-time worst segments that I have ever seen. Absolutely nothing happened. Everything that is wrong with these three-hour shows where they just blather on and they're clearly just stalling for time. If I am fortunate enough to live to a ripe old age in my final days recording Sound Off episode 2798, looking back on my life and how I spent my time, I'm going to remember this Shane McMahon segment and regret the fact that I wasted those minutes of my life that I would give anything to have back. This sucked. The Salamonster Sounds Off, available wherever you hear podcasts, including iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and now Pandora. Want more content? Visit YouTube.com slash The Salamonster for Sound Off extras and more. And follow The Salamonster on Twitter, at Salamonster. 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 Put that cigarette out. Salamonster Sounds Off. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.